my fellow Westorians, welcome back. It is Sunday, at least when we're recording. It might not be Sunday when you're listening, but we're happy to have you whatever day it is you're listening. How's it going, Sean? What are you drinking today? It's going well. I have a red-ish drink. It's more purple, I think, from the protein berry naked drink, but I was trying to get red for the Red Priest. Makes sense. Makes sense. Doris of Mir. I appreciate the effort. Everyone else does too. <laughs> yeah, it's a dirty, it's a dirty red like him. Yeah, the, actually, that's a good point. Dirty red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, he it did call himself closer to a pink, yeah. tattered pink wizard yeah. later on. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how both Makoro and Thoros get called pink priest at some point because <laughs> the red turns pink when it's out in the elements <laughs> for so long. Mm-hmm. You'd think if they're living at the temple, they'd get fresh robes from time to time. But when you're out and about, you can't always... What, am I some sort of red robe sale? We should have a red <laughs> robe sponsor <laughs> instead of our <laughs> usuals. <laughs> We're just kind of joking, but I, I wonder if there is some symbolism to the idea that... I was going to say that maybe like in the temple with the red robes, it's easier to be true to your religion, but when you go out in the world and kind of get worn down, but both these characters seemed at least as resolved as ever, if not more. That's a good point. As yeah. a rope goes from red to pink. That is know? a really good metaphor for the strength of their faith, how deep the red is. Of course, with Makoro, he didn't ever lose any faith, but it, that would apply. You could apply that to other players. It could apply to Thoros because he did lose it and then it came back. Although he's his garb is still quite tattered at this point. <laughs> but you'd think as Mir actually has the best clothing manufacturing in the world that we know of. So they probably have the best red robes. The Temple of Mir probably has the best red robe priest. Yeah. The, the, the priests come to visit from Ashai and they're like, damn, y'all got some nice threads. Yeah, they got that <laughs> mirish silk and mirish lace. Good stuff there. But we're not here to talk about that so much as we are to talk about one particular person who, who of origin from, from Mir. almost said of origin from Thoros. Like, I don't think he has any children that we know of. But, and if they, if he did have children, would they be like shadow babies too? But he just doesn't give, I don't know how that works with men. Hmm. So anyway, we'll get into that though. Well, maybe not that, but other stuff about Thoros. <laughs> All this episode, we're going to look at it through his eyes as much as possible. That should be fun. And it also is going to obviously reveal things about the Brother Without Banners, about R'hllor, about Beric, maybe about Melisandre, because we need some comparisons. A little bit to Makoro as well, but more Melisandre than Makoro, because we know a lot more about Melisandre than Makoro. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shout out to our good friend, Nina. Her latest blog post is on Willis Tyrell. The question she was given is, Willis really going to be like he's been built up to be, like kind of a nice guy? Is that really accurate? 
is one question. Are we, is there anything to read between the lines there? So you'll want to read that. Check it out at goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. One L in alley. Willis is the one that got injured and like a, he was young on his horse, maybe at a tournament or something. By right? Oberyn and, specifically. And people got mad, but even Willis was like, that wasn't Oberyn's fault. He was putting the tournament too young. And he's the heir to Highgarden. So this episode is voted on by patrons. You can join in the votes by signing up at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Next week, we have an episode on blood magic. We put up several supernatural theme topics and the winner was blood magic. So we'll be talking blood magic next week and that'll be a lot of fun. Did you know Martin's world is so robust? No. You didn't? No. Well, have I got some topics for you. (laughs) We always like to describe the overlapping topics that pop up when we're discussing one particular topic. No matter how broad or honed in we get, There's always overlap to other topics and our catalog is getting big enough that we can often point you towards some of those other topics that we've covered in the past. So we will do that at the end of every episode, such as this one. An interesting point, we talked about the Basilisk Isles last week and we pointed out that like Icel had Basilisk poison. Yeah. And uh, Rabinir, Ranabir, sorry, I wasn't saying it, Ranabir, he pointed out that if Picel had that, then Kyber now has that. I thought that True, was an interesting yes. thing to think Very about. Very good point. Yeah, Kyber inherited yeah. all those poisons. It was a quite a collection of poisons that Pycelle had. He had basically everything. I mean, we got to see it when Tyrion went up there and, and stole something. So he, he perused it all before making off with the one he wanted. So you're right. That is a good point. Good call. That is why we love to interact with y'all. Y'all are deep in the material like us and think of things that we don't always catch. So the trivia question, Mir is famed for a number of high quality goods. We just mentioned some of them, lace and silk, but also carpets, glass, fire wine. Two weapons in particular are famed to be manufactured in Mir. One of them is crossbows. That's the particularly most famous one. What's the other one? Bonus question, who is the only person we actually see wield this weapon? It's referred to in a few places, but only one person we see actually wields this other mirish weapon. Up to two questions there to answer. Is it a flaming sword? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good guess, but no. By the way, somewhere in, in my readings and studies for this episode, I saw that there was some plant in Mir that has a healing property, yeah. which I thought was an interesting little connection to Thoris bringing people back from the dead. I, <laughs> I don't think it's a trick like Melisandre mixes her real powers with tricks just to win people over. I don't think that's the case here, but an interesting parallel to be drawn. Yeah. So Thoros, well, let's do a little setup before we get into... Sothoros. Sothoros, aha, <laughs> the old way. It used to be... Did you know that, Sean? It used to be Sothoros before it was Sothorios. George ch- added the Y oh. later. Yeah, it had a few different names before it was settled on Sothorios. There was like Sothoros and... I think there was one other one. that I can't remember it, but it had a few iterations. Yeah, it's not the only one that's been like that because we obviously had like Gorgosos and, you know, yeah. other names have, have been tweaked over time. That's true, which is consistent with real history and things having different name. You could, you, could, you could kind of fit it to the way the real world works in that sense. So Thoros is mentioned quite a lot in A Game of Thrones. He is certainly not a character George added later. In other words, he's one that George had plans for right away. Those plans may have changed. In fact, they likely did because George has changed a lot of his plans and Thoros probably is not immune to that. But that also doesn't mean the original plan for Thoros has changed a lot. It might be relatively similar to what he plotted out from the beginning. 
one piece of setup that's really important here. We're not going to talk about show Thoros. We're going to do book Thoros only. Show Thoros is interesting, but pretty different. And we'll pick another time to talk about that when we talk about related topics to Thoros, like resurrection and the original plan for Catelyn and Lady Stoneheart, which changed also. And those things may relate. But here, we're just focused on Thoros, what he's done in the book, and we'll guess at what's coming and ask some good questions that maybe can't be answered as to what we might expect, such as, will he meet Melisandre? Will he meet Sandor again? Things like that. Fun stuff. But let's start at the beginning with the Game of Thrones and then go even farther back. Here's our first quote from Sansa. The girls giggled over the warrior priest Thoros of Myr with his flapping red robes and shaven head until the Septa told them that he had once scaled the walls of Pike with a flaming sword in hand. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. The walls were broken by stone throwers and he rushed through the breach. But it's still an absurdly brave, amazing thing to do. <laughs> Just not quite as brave as scaling the walls with a, <laughs> with a sword in your hand. Like, you maybe should put that in your scabbard while you're climbing, man. I mean, just, woof. anyway. When you put it in a scabbard, the flame's going to go out. Uh, you got to do what you got to do. You're right, man. You, you're, when you're right, you're right. Got to have that flaming sword. <laughs> It's a good thing he shaved his head at that time, too, right? Because he set his hair on fire. I, I'm serious. Like, I think that is why he shaves his head. He doesn't want his own hair catching on fire. But out in the woods later, he doesn't have that luxury, if you could even call lost it luxury. His razor. He doesn't have his razor. That's right. He even he makes that specific point. And then he's lost his razor. And what's funny here in this joust is the person we see him beat is Beric. <laughs> he beats Beric in the joust while Sansa's watching. That just kind of ends up being funny considering they're like they become best buddies <laughs> he does lose eventually we're not sure to whom though because it comes down to we're just told it comes down to a final four so we don't know maybe it was one of those final four that beat him it would have been interesting if one of those final four that beat him was either sandor or gregor because he has a lot of history and story to yet to come with those two gregor from the past and sandor more of the future by the way lost in a jousting but won the melee yes and here is the quote about that the victor was the red priest, Thoros of Myr, a madman who shaved his head and fought with a flaming sword. He had won melees before. The fire sword frightened the mounts of the other riders, and nothing frightened Thoros. That's kind of crazy that he has won melees, like winning multiple melees. Like melees are really hard to win. You got a bunch of people just all free for all fighting. It's got to be real easy just for someone to hit you when you're not even looking, you know, <laughs> and knock you down or what have you to me, already suggests the skill of this guy and uh, not just the skill, but his tactics apparently help a lot. Yeah, too. I mean, the think about sword. it, right? Like, if you think about you're entering the melee and you're like, oh God, like the guy with a flaming sword is entering, I would I would be psyched out too. Yeah. I'll get to him later. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, let me think of this easy part. target. Because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's also really big. He is not just, it's not just a fire sword. He's large. Varus mentions how Thoros would have been helpful to the plot to murder Robert. Talking about how they tried to con Robert into getting into the melee. Thoros is a great distraction. Thoros is waving his fire sword around like if someone killed Robert, who would know? Like, well, it wouldn't be Thoros because Thoros and Robert are friends. But that just goes to show, like, he draws the eye, whether on the battlefield, whether it's a fake battle or a real battle. The huge man with the flaming sword is going to draw the eye, even when there's like a thousand people <laughs> around. That really helps and makes him interesting just by itself. When he is sent with Beric and several other notable men to go after Gregor, and that's when his story really gets going. That's when it becomes meaningful, and he, he goes from someone that's just a dude who hangs around at court drinking and chasing girls and hanging out with the king and fighting whenever he gets a chance, fake fighting, to someone that's 
got a lot of gravitas and with a lot of depth and has a full arc that is not complete yet. When we last see him jumping ahead, it's with Brienne and they have a, a quick conversation. You are the Mirish priest, the Red Wizard. He looked down at his ragged robes and smiled ruefully. The pink pretender, rather. I am Thoros, late of Mir, I. A bad priest and a worse wizard. You're the pink pretender. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm the real pink. (laughs) You're the real pink. Sean Pink. No no robes, though. Hmm. You got the beard, though. Like You got a priestly, wizardly beard. You got that going. So there is a lot that came in between Brienne seeing Thoros and Sansa seeing Thoros and the melee and all that, and even more before that. So we have a lot to cover. He's not a young man. And one of the reasons he's mentioned so much early on is that he already has a well-established reputation dating back to the time of King Aerys. Obviously, Septim Mordain had heard of him. Sansa hadn't, but most everybody else had. I mean, Sansa's, what, 12 at that point. Ned certainly knew who he was. There's no evidence he's concealed his age like Melisandre surely has. Makoro maybe has. Makoro is just really hard to tell. As some of the other Red priests certainly have. Benero probably has, even though we only see him briefly. It's an open question whether he's supernaturally slowed his age or now is doing that. Now that the old powers have awakened, maybe he wasn't, but now he is. It's unclear. There's a lot of things about him as a red priest that are exceptions when compared to the others. Like this one, like the age thing. But he has wielded the power of Relore. He has the abilities. He does use magic, even though he doesn't call it magic. He calls it answered prayers. But semantics aside... That might have side effects on him, just the use of magic for years. Sitting at a desk for a long time can make you lean forward more, can put a little stress on your neck. Wielding the power of Relore, that flame passing through you repeatedly, who knows what that does to a person? Maybe that's part of the de-aging process. Anyway, he had completed Red Priest training when he was sent to Westeros and to Ares, and it takes years to learn to read the flames. Not to mention whatever else he learned to do while at the Red Temple. So I think we can pretty solidly guess he's in his 40s more likely mid to late 40s than early. Younger wouldn't fit the timeline, given that he was sent to Westeros prior to Ares' death. He was there before the rebellion. So that's the early 280s at the latest, and possibly earlier than that. We're now in the year 301. So he's been in Westeros at least 20 years, probably closer to 25, maybe 30. Though I tend towards the younger end because he's such a strong fighter, and it's said he goes gray while out in the wilderness, and he wasn't gray before. It's kind of hard to say he was already in his 50s or something like that if he wasn't gray at all. But one point to make is he might have been more gray than he realized if he had been shaving his head. <laughs> That's a great point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then lets it grow oh, out he and realizes the gray. That was there. Yeah. That's a very good point. But also, you might gray a little faster in war. You know, I'm Also sure. true, yeah. Yeah. That certainly happens to several people. Like Theon's hair is prematurely white. That wasn't entirely war, but it's violence and stress and trauma and it's similar yeah. and things. Not to downplay those, but also just physical exertion and malnourishment, just the war aside, just living in the woods for a year. In general, that time period is rougher than modern days. You know, even in that time period, when you don't even have the option of like a grocery store, it's even worse when you're living in the woods and hunting and being hunted and so on. And I want to, that brings up a question about Thoros for everybody to ponder as we move forward, which by the way, as always, we welcome your questions and comments. Does Thoros have this same, I don't need to eat ability that Melisandre and Presumably, Makaro has it too, because he was floating in the ocean for like a week or two <laughs> and didn't die. Does Thoros also have that ability? Because Melisandre doesn't need to eat or drink. She does it occasionally just to keep up appearances, but she doesn't need to. At one point, it's stated that Beric didn't eat. That, yeah, he doesn't need I to. I want to say, quote unquote, everyone else is eating, but not Beric. Yeah. 
I don't know if Thoris was included in the arrow everyone. I don't oh, remember it clear enough. Oh, good point. But it does seem like they pointed out that Beric didn't, well, and they didn't point did. out Thoros. Maybe they didn't that point out that Yeah, he was, that's a great point. She, yeah, I mean, she could, probably would have noticed. I mean, he could still be eating for the enjoyment of it and because he doesn't make him sick or whatever and not yeah. need to, right? Maybe he hasn't realized he doesn't need to. He yeah. just used I mean, to always need to, and, and now that the old powers have awakened and... You know, hey, Maybe that's why I can start resurrecting. So yeah. <laughs> he was eating when he didn't need it to. Like he missed that class at the Red Temple. <laughs> yeah, he was off chasing girls again. And whereas, like Dornish Dame here says, the amount of weight Thoros loses makes them think he does need food. Mm, like, that's a good point too. Pre- yeah, so he know. is just a little different, cut from a different cloth. Which, given Mir's exceptional cloth production, that makes sense. Thoros in Mir is our next section. He obviously wasn't called Thoros of Mir, living in Mir. That'd be pretty weird if it's just like I'm walking around Atlanta being like, what's up, Joe of Atlanta? Hey, Aziz of Atlanta. <laughs> hey, Shea of Hawaii. You know, <laughs> Given our guesstimation, he was probably born in the late 240s, early 250s, which is around the same time as, say, Stefan Baratheon, Robert and Renly and Stannis' dad. Tygat Lannister, which is the younger brother of Kevin and Tywin. And then also a little before Jerrion, who was the fourth brother of that group. So he'd be a little younger than Ares. Tywin, Kevin, and Jenna Lannister, around that, but roughly in that age range. The king in Westeros would be Aegon V when he was born, but Thoros was, of course, born in Myr, which, which is one of the nine free cities, not subject to the Iron Throne, but it's a very important neighbor and not far away. Not quite as close as Pentos, but closer than, say, Bravos. He was born the eighth of eight children, but was apparently unwanted. Perhaps his parents thought that actually seven is enough. But he was also a large boy with a commensurate appetite. So it may have been kind of like having nine kids. He was eating for two. And it was kind of like having twins. Like, geez, we were already struggling to feed this family. Now you got this kid that eats so much that it counts for more than one. So Mir is a city of plenty, though. It sits atop the fertile horn of southwest Essos. Were it not for the constant warring over the disputed lands, the region could at large could support a huge population. But perpetual war is the norm. Still, the regions close to Mir are said to be quite prosperous. Apparently, Thoros's family, though, didn't catch some of that trickle down from the prosperity, at least not enough of it that they could feed all their children uh, or at least take care of them well. Mir is a city of artisans known for these goods that we mentioned during the trivia question. Some of these goods aren't made anywhere else in the world, but you don't just enter these trades at will. These are still jobs that, like in the real world, you just can't pick up this job on your own, the skills for this, you have to go to school for it, maybe a trade school, or maybe more likely in a setting like this, your family has a little bit of a connection, and they have to pay as an apprenticeship fee. In fact, that is why Ned knew something was up with Gendry when he went to see Tabo Mott, because Tabo Mott's like, yeah, I just took him on. He was a strong boy, and I thought he'll make a good apprentice. And Ned's like, bull hockey. No one does that. All apprenticeships are paid for and there's tons of strong boys in Flea Bottom. What's the real story here? Similar deal here. Thoros couldn't have been given over to one of these artisans for a job because that would have cost money. And if they can barely afford to feed him, they certainly can't pay this fee. So you got to pay to learn. And his family didn't have that money. Mir is also amongst the artifice and prosperity. It's also a city of temples and there's no charge for giving a kid to a temple, at least not to the Red Temple, where Thoros was given at a young age. Given the abundance of choices, though, lots of temples, they picked this one. Does that suggest to y'all that this was the, the family he came from were also worshippers of Relore? I mean, they, if they worshipped a different god, they probably would have given him to that temple. 
Or am I reading too much into it? What do you all think? I mean, I agree, but I also think that it's also possible to look at be a multi-religion worshiper and look mm. at it and be like, well, this is the best temple to, to be given mm. to. Like, I think that is possible as well. Very good take. I agree with that. Especially if like your main God is the drowned God or some other <laughs> awful God of death or whatever. And, and you know that the Red Temple will take good care of the kids. They have an infrastructure for it or whatever. Yeah, nice Maybe ropes. they're even yeah. just nearby or they know other people in a Red Temple. I think it is worth clarifying that Mir isn't a city of R'hllor per se. Right. right. There's many different religions and cultures all intermixed there. Exactly. I think there's a decent chance there. I, I was also wondering if there might be some symbolism to the idea that he's not one of the seven. Oh, he's that's the eight, cool. He goes outside the seven. Yeah. Hey, good catch. Totally didn't think of that. That's neat. Not if George was being like he didn't. There. Martin didn't make him the ninth kid or the fifth kid. You know. Yeah. Good point. I like that. I never thought of that. Says he was given to the temple as opposed to sold, as in slavery. Mir is a slave city. He doesn't have a slave brand. Slaves in Mir are supposedly branded. We, as If he has a slave brand, we don't know of it. So I think this, he's either softening the story and he really was given as a slave and he just doesn't like saying that or and his parents got some money out of it or that's just not on the table and it was, they just, this is just how it works. That he was quote unquote given, but it, not as chattel, but as they devoted him to R'hllor. I lack the right word for it, but there's something in between slave and what he is. An education and a, as a future and security and everything, it, it still sucks to not have your liberty, but I can see how Thoros might not feel his enslavement is as much a punishment. Yeah. As an opportunity yeah I do whatever, wonder you know. yeah, how they decide who to brand. Yeah, like their... what's his legal status in the city? Like, I don't think he's the legal status of a slave, but he might not have been allowed to leave the Red Temple either. Yeah, it might just be like a difference in like, you, if you're an actual citizen of Mir and you're you know, devoted to the Mir Red Temple, right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, your grandfather in is you're not a slave because you're, you know. It not. might be like, say, the, like an army where you're not a slave, but you signed away some of your rights for a certain amount of time and you can't just leave. Yeah. Like, it's not, a, it's not like not like a job that you can just quit. So it might be more like that where you've you've made a, a commitment, a bond. That's a good guilty undertaker here says, perhaps Thoros' slave tattoo is on his ass. Is it possible he has one that is not in a visible spot? That would be hilarious. Or some glamour covering it up. You um, never know. It's, it's in the realm of possibility. It is possible. I do wonder, that's a question for later. I was like, does Thoros know how to do glamours? Is that a thing? We've never seen him do one. That doesn't mean he can't. Didn't question. That would be a twist, by the way, if his family gave him to R'hllor because they're devout R'hllorists. And he's not very devout, but then he does eventually become pretty devout. He's devout now. <laughs> he's become devout given he's seen, well, the old powers woke and the proof was there and he resurrected someone. That's going to make a believer out of you, especially when you're already sort of predisposed towards it. So perhaps they didn't intend to give him away. And anyway, this is all open questions as to his upbringing. So at first, the temple may have regretted accepting him. He claims to have been wild. He led other kids his age into kitchen raids. Which is kind of a fun portent of what he's going to do in the Brotherhood Without Banners later. He's raiding food <laughs> to give to people later. Like it's a, it's not as amusing or lighthearted, but it is <laughs> it is kind of foreshadowing for what he does with his life later. He also gets caught with girls in his bed, which wasn't allowed. But clearly, the punishments weren't so severe that he stopped. Or maybe he just thought it was worth it anyway. He's like, yeah, it's worth it. Regardless, he was brave, not afraid of being caught not afraid of rebelling against authority, which is pretty crucial for his uh, character. 
<laughs> perhaps given the <laughs> lack of true parenting he received. When you're the eighth of eight and given away, it sounds like he was underparented and he certainly wasn't parented the temple. They instructed him and raised him. That's not par- that's not the same as parenting. Coupled with his natural size, his prowess, and all these other things, yeah, I could see how he was a handful for any person in charge of his upbringing, whatever you want to give, whatever title you want to give them. But he was gifted too, not just big and loud and capable. He performed, which may have helped him get away with some of his rule breaking. Like, yeah, he's obnoxious and out of line, but he's good at stuff. You can get away with a lot when you're good at stuff. We've all seen that in the real world ad nauseum. Thoros showed a solid talent for flame reading and other priestly matters, but he wasn't that pious. But crucially, he showed aptitude with languages. Now, Mirish is already not that different than common. If you were doing a language chart, they'd be really close together, which is part of why the Red Temple sent him west. And they were like, well, this kid knows languages. He's got some other skills. Maybe they wanted to get rid of him. That's, in fact, it's a, not unlikely that they were ready to have him be somewhere else. But he would have lived there a long time, probably as long as two decades, so up to 20 years of living at the temple, being a troublemaker, but also showing his aptitude. And it supposedly takes a long time to learn to read the flames. So that's one of the reasons we can be sure he was there for a while. For example, Melisandre once said to Davos, quote, It takes years of training to see the shapes beyond the flames and more years still to learn to tell the shapes of what will be from what may be or what was. Even then, it comes hard, hard. You do not understand that, you men of the Sunset Lands. She means Westeros, the sun, referring to the Sunset Lands. <laughs> Thoros does understand. He, he is not a man of the Sunset Lands, though he has been living there half his life. I, by the way, I interpret that to mean that Melisandre still doesn't really get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Yeah. I think this I think this is sort of like a little bit of I have this power, but I don't really understand it. But I'm gonna pretend like I do, and it's really hard. But the fact is, I don't always get it right. Even me, I don't always get it right. Yeah, isn't that a great difference between those two? Melisandre is such certainty, and Thoros is just like, who knows? Just trust in Relor. Yeah. I have faith, but I have no idea. Yeah. At one point, he's like, I'm a blind fool. I'm probably not reading this right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm trying. I see these visions, but you know, I don't always get it and right. Melisandre's like, in section 4.3 of the Relorist <laughs> Prophecy Code, you know, it says <laughs> she's got it down to a <laughs> particular sentence. And, well, she presents it that way. Right. But internally, she's like, I, don't know, I hope Stannis is the one. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. I'm really committed to this. So. They really are opposite ends in a lot of ways of this. It's really neat. I love how George has presented that. And more, more Melisandre and Thoros comparisons throughout this episode. I also wonder, like, his day-to-day life, not a lot to go on there, what it's like in Mir. We haven't covered Mir individually yet. I don't know that it would really help that much for something like this, but it would maybe give us a little more. But he just spent most of his life inside the temple. He didn't really probably live in Mir per se. He probably didn't go around a lot, right? He mostly spent his time learning. And like a lot of people in university do, they're, especially if you live on campus, you don't necessarily get around a whole lot. Nina wonders too, like, do they teach them how to fight? Maybe the ones that have aptitude for it, they teach or they give some further instruction. Like there's people like Sam who are just kind of hopeless at fighting. Like they're no, no matter what, how you teach them, they're never going to be any good at it. So it's kind of a waste of time. May as well just learn other skills. But someone like Thoros, like this guy's got extreme aptitude for fighting. Maybe they develop that a bit, make him, you know. Because they do have like a, a battalion. Yeah, the whatever, fiery right? hand and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although I don't know if they exist in Mir. They probably do. They definitely exist in Volantis and they definitely, so... Maybe that's a standard operating procedure for 
red temples. And you can imagine they probably need some guards, you know, someone to watch the food or to watch the gate or, I don't know, protect the kids or whatever it is, you know, maybe they just rely on the honest infrastructure of the city of Mir, but maybe they take it into their own hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because like if he didn't have the aptitude, they might have made him a warrior or a guard, but he's also undisciplined that he wouldn't have maybe been that good at that either. But so it's like, no wonder they were like, send this guy overseas. (laughs) Yeah. I, I really wonder about his family. What's the deal with his older brothers and sisters? Does he know any of them? Does he still have contact with any of them? Does he have any contact to Mir at all? Does he know people there? Or has it just been so long that it's all dried up now? George left it open for a lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether he'll fill it in, I don't know. But because you can imagine he was brought to the temple as an infant and he only knows that because they told him. Yeah. It might not even be true, right? But maybe he went there at age nine after his family didn't know what to do with him. He maybe caused other trouble. Maybe he liked the Red Temple or. Maybe his, maybe some of his other siblings also went there. You know, yeah. you can imagine him still having. He doesn't talk about them much, mm-hmm. so it seems like he pro- probably doesn't have particular ties to them. Yeah, but he doesn't talk about them negatively. He doesn't. I don't know. It's kind of one of those things. It's that, pretty open. It's maybe one of the things that like a lot of very serene religious people can be very accepting of just whatever the world has dealt them, even if it's a, like a, a crappy hand. We might call it bad luck or bad parenting or societal ills or whatever. You see this a lot with people of that ilk, I think, of just accepting whatever it is. And maybe there is some pain and some trauma, but he doesn't want to speak to it. He handles it this way by just putting it in the past or just accepting it, being Zen about it. Also, it would be 30 or more years in the past. It would. So he may have gotten over it and enjoyed enough of the world, seen enough other suffering to put his own in check or whatever. On the other hand, here's a take from Nina that I think is pretty powerful. She says, I don't get the sense that Thoros was with his family for very long, given that he barely mentions them at all. We're not in Thoros's head the way we are in Melisandre's. But it's worth comparing Melisandre's clearly painful memory of being sold as a slave, which was a long time ago. We're talking like a hundred years ago, if not more, maybe. And she hasn't forgotten about it. I mean, it's trauma. It doesn't just go away, right? But we're, if we were in Thoros's head, he might be having traumatic dreams or might occasionally have something like a vague memory of his mother or his father just barely because he doesn't remember them very well. Something like that. Some like an outline, like something like Gendry barely remembering his mother, you know, or thing like that. You can also imagine Melisandre through her life experiencing more trauma, like yeah. constantly as a woman she was being a slave. treated as second hand and uh, who yeah. are, right. Whereas Thoros was like hanging out with a king, getting drunk, having fun. Like, how can I be? Yeah. You know, it's a, he did have an easier a little life. easier for him yeah. to get past it. Good yeah. point. Good point. Like not, not just a, a man not just a man who found himself in better circumstances later in life, but a large man in a warrior culture, brave yeah. warrior. Like he just, yeah. people just respect him a little more for that, just for the way he was born, I think. Also might be a reason he's drinking so much too. Maybe he's trying to- Absolutely. Deep inside, right? Excellent take. Yeah, I think maybe yeah, a lot of that might be trying to forget some of these dreams. We've seen lots of people with visions drink to forget. Daron the drunkard. Yeah, I mean, Melisandre, I don't even know that she can get drunk, <laughs> you know, like the way her body works. Like she doesn't need food. Like her all, I, we can't make any assumptions about anything about consumption with her or Makoro. <laughs> I kind of doubt Melisandre could get drunk, but she can get high on Relore. She can get high on fire. One of my favorite bands. <laughs> <laughs> Thoris did have the early skill in flames. And we, we've seen it at least once during the, the novels. And it's implied that he's done it more than once. Nina says, it's interesting that Thoros never mentions receiving any sort of vision of Azor Ahai, though. Much less having been sent to find Azor Ahai, 
despite noting his talent for flame reading. Mm, the Mirish Red Temple may look at things a little differently, or maybe he's just going his own way, or... We know Melisandre's kind of on her own, too. She's doing some things kind of outside of the scope of the general Red Temple leadership, but their general Red Temple leadership through Benero and Makoro are also looking for Azor High, and they think they've found her in Daenerys. Yeah, but so far, Thoros... And Melson, neither of them are on that track. Melson's on the Azor High track, not on the Danny track. Thoros isn't on either. <laughs> At least not yet. You wonder about that. Was it his education almost certainly had to include Azor High stuff? I mean, it's part of their ancient literature, but hmm, don't know. We also wonder about other spells he may have learned. Near the end, we'll kind of wrap up and, and look back and say, okay, these are the magics we've seen him use. These are magics maybe could use, but hasn't. That's a question for ongoing. So he goes to Westeros. Let's just go there. We can't be sure where he was when the tragedy of Summerhall occurred. But given that it was a huge, fiery conflagration, and because it was a huge event, no matter who you are, the Red Temple and Mir, not to mention the other Red Temples, would have taken notice. I mean, attempting to wake dragon eggs from stone through a ritual is, after all, spoken of in the text, the Red Priesthood, have more than awareness of. They have access to it. It's part of their thing, right? Like, this is something Melisandre repeats. This is something we hear them talk about. It comes up in several places. So this timing is interesting because Thoros would have been young around then, but he would have probably been already been at the temple by then. Summer happened in 259. So Thoros would have been 10-ish, roughly then. Good chance he's already at the temple. They may have considered sending one of their own, Red Priests, to Jaehaerys, the new king. But the War of Nine Penny Kings broke out pretty quick in his reign, and Maelise the monstrous Blackfire attempted to claim the throne. So maybe they're like, well, let's wait and see who wins here, and then we'll... Apparently in an earlier draft of the Dance of Dragons, George had Maelise the monstrous trying to hatch dragon eggs and two as well by sacrificing his own son. So yet again, we have this being played around with in a city... Next door to Mir, that would have been in Tyrosh that that happened. Anyway, so Jerry's died. He had a really short reign. So maybe then they were like, all right, maybe now we send somebody. But we don't know when Thoros was sent. We don't know if Thoros was sent because in part they wanted to get rid of him or because they started to think, well, maybe we should be trying to talk to this king here. Maybe we should be getting involved in their business if they're trying to hatch dragons from stone. And this new King Ares is obsessed with fire. By the way, we talk about Ares' fire obsession maybe having started because of Summerhall. He witnessed his whole family die to wildfire and then later in life becomes obsessed with wildfire. Hmm, that sounds like it could be related. That's a big topic in our Summerhall episodes. Both of them, we have two. I think sometimes when you say they sending Thoros over, when they would do it or who is they? Yeah, you know, yeah the leadership uh, of the, how much. Yeah. Of the Red Temple Emir? What about Red Temples in other places? Did yeah. they send Melisandre? Like, I, I don't know how on the same page all of them... Now, they might all be on the same page more than the typical organization if they can see the same stuff in flames. I can imagine it just being one leader had this idea one time and it wasn't necessarily this meeting <laughs> of all the head council, yeah. you know, or something. But yeah, it could have just been one guy. Like, all right, I'm sending you to... And, like, and everybody's like, hey, what happened to Thoros? Like, oh, I sent him to Westeros. You know, like, oh, yeah. all right, fine. You know, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> A lot of open questions there. It's possible that we'll find out one day why, more about this. But either way, Thoros says it has a lot to do with Ares's love of fire and the way that, you know, they, they're looking for a trickle-down effect to convert the king. Maybe he converts other, a lot of other people or, or forcibly converts people. Either way, he's 
you can see the in- intuitive sense, the logic behind starting at the top, even though it doesn't work, even though it works better the opposite way later, starting at the bottom and working through the commoners. But at the time, you know, there's a certain logic to this. There's two sides to this. If they thought it was an important task, then why would they send a guy that they were just trying to get rid of? You know what I mean? Like, or maybe it was both. Maybe they, they didn't like him, but they still recognized his talent. So like, okay, this is perfect. We get rid of him and put his skills to use. So it may have been both. We don't have to say it's one or the other. Or maybe, again, maybe someone just had a vision that they were supposed well, to send him. They, that's they, true. they saw him in Westeros. I guess you need to go to Westeros. It's a clever yeah. way to get rid of him. Like, I had a vision. I didn't really have a vision. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, another thought I had, often he's pretty bold. Yeah. He's often charging into and battle. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we'll say bold, brave. But I wonder how much maybe... He's lost the will to live. He doesn't care anymore. Like if he did have a terrible home life mm. or family that got rid of him, maybe he does paint the, the Red Temple as being nicer than it really was, but really he's depressed or demoralized, nihilistic. And like, ah, I might as well die in battle. Maybe he's caught mm. up in Robert's. Yeah. Thinking he has lower self-worth, maybe extending yeah, yeah. because of like his parents got rid of him. He's like, well, I'm not worth anything. So I may as well. Yeah. Being drunk all the time. Yeah. But also another piece to all that, all that could be true. And also, or maybe just this thing, maybe he also has had a vision. Maybe he knows he's going to die north of the wall. Some way that isn't a battle at Pike or whatever. He might have this extra boldness going into these, you know, violent moments because he's already had a vision of how he's going to die. Wow. Yeah. And on the other hand, he's, so funny. He's, he's got a great sense of humor. He's self-deprecating. You notice that multiple times. He he laughs when yeah. people like Sandor laughs in his face one time about being ugly, and and it said Thoros laughed loudest of all in response. So he gets it. He's he's easy to laugh. Maybe he's like the slightly depressed comedian type. You get the good sense of humor behind that. He's got some pain. He's always quick to downplay whenever someone's like, "Oh, the Red Wizards, yeah, the pink, the bad pink one, and the, the Pretender," like yeah. never wants to meet up the reputation that precedes him. Yeah. He always downplays it. Under the umbrella of his own faith, he even makes jokes like this. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not not the best priest ever. (laughs) You pulled a a good quote example of that here. The sun will not cease to shine if we miss a prayer or two, Thoros agreed mildly. I am one who would know. (laughs) That's in reference (laughs) to the young boy, like a young monk saying, don't do your Relora prayers in here, you know. And of course, this is after... They just saved this kid from being killed. So it's really rude. Yeah. <laughs> really, really zealous. So when the other monks. And so, like, someone else in a party is like, what? We just saved your life. Yeah. And so I was like, ah, don't worry. We don't need to do yeah. it. Lem so, took yeah. it kind of bitterly, but Thoros was like, yeah. ah, I don't worry about it. He's just a, he's just a kid. You know, in his self-deprecating manner, which take that into, into account when he says they just wanted to get rid of him. Nina tends to agree. She, she says that, yeah, he's not wrong, but you can't deny his, his amiable personality, his ability to form relationships. He's got charisma. That's kind of undeniable. So this is one of those things. He's got Riz. He's got Riz. <laughs> He's got Riz. <laughs> I can't believe you just said that, Sean. I've heard that word said so many times this week. It's, it's crazy. Okay. So Ares had started burning people by around 280. I would guess Thoros was sent before the madness started going to Ares. I mean, maybe that would be a real way to get rid of Thoros. Like, yeah, send him to that mad king. Because it's kind of weird to send a priest to a guy who's just openly burning people and like, yeah, let's convert this guy. I'm skeptical. That's when they did it. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe the, maybe Ares's madness was, it took a while for the rest of the world to hear about that, which is possible. Maybe there was a little overlap there. 
Maybe there was even a rumor of it, but everyone does automatically assume yeah. the rumor of a king burning people is true. Mm. And especially if some priest or council had already decided they needed to send someone or that Thoros needed to go on to make, you know, maybe they even send him on the three month boat trip. And then two weeks later, find out this news like, oh, well, we already sent him. I, I can easily imagine sending him despite that or sending him without having knowledge of it. Here's a weird conundrum that comes up with having knowledge through flames this time. For example, Mel, we talk about Melisandre being so sure, having such certainty, and Thoros having the opposite, being kind of like, yeah, I don't know. He says, I've gotten things wrong so many times. It's weird to like imagine that as a flame reader. We've all experienced someone asks a question, you think you know the answer, but you keep quiet because you think you're wrong, and then you find out you were right. Like, oh, I could have, I was right. I should have said something, you know. Imagine that with flame reading. You're like, oh, I saw that in the flames. I didn't say anything. Man, I could have been. <laughs> I was like, I just didn't trust my flame reading there. Oh, yeah. You know, something just occurred to me. Like, R'hllor, maybe R'hllor doesn't, but Melisandre burned a lot of people at the stake. Yeah, yeah. So maybe Ares burning people alive isn't a turnoff to them. Maybe if it's even a turnoff. Like, maybe, I wonder. Yeah, you could we be We don't right. really have any evidence to this, but I wonder if, some evidence, if what is burned might affect what, or how powerful of a vision you have. Oh, yeah. Like, they burned the leeches, and it gave her a certain type of vision, right? The power of uh, blood, yeah, the certain, the king's blood if and all you, that, yeah. If you're burning humans, I wonder if you get more powerful visions. Yeah. But they know it's kind of taboo. The city of Mir will get upset with us if we do this. Like, hey, that king's burning people? Thoros is pretty good at Rita Flames. Send him over there and see if he can see anything mm, in the human flames that this king is turning up. Yeah, yeah. they may have. You're right. I, I looked at it kind of backwards. You're right. I looked at it as maybe a, a reason to delay, but they may have looked at it as a reason to accelerate. Like, oh, he's burning people. All right, he's on our, he's on our level. <laughs> That's a great point, actually. Yeah, I may, have, I may have gotten that backwards. And as well, what is relorism and what is blood magic? Like, where, where is the overlap here? Like, is it, clearly people like Makora were sacrificing and Melisandre sacrificing, but what's blood magic and what is Priest of Relore stuff? And that's something we'll talk about next week when we talk about blood magic. Uh, some of it probably is both. It doesn't have to be put into neat little boxes and separated and categorized, but it does. It is a crossover in a Venn diagram because Melisandre is considered a shadow binder and a red priestess. So I think like the, for example, the, the shadow babies, I don't think that's a red priest thing, but it could be because they are priestesses of priests of God of flame and shadow. And that's kind of what that thing was. I don't know. I don't know, but that's, yeah, that, that's a little outside our scope today, but not entirely. So of course, when Thoros gets to, Westeros, this is when he starts getting called Thoros of Mir. <laughs> the of Mir gets added. So they would have hoped that his love of fire would help, aside from just burning people. He liked fire in general. He started using wildfire for things like heating and other stuff. This is where we wonder what powers were available to Thoros at this point in history. This is before the dragons, before the comet. We know some magic was still possible. Obviously, he had read some flames before this point because it was part of his upbringing. So that was still possible back then. But what about fire swords? That maybe wasn't possible back then, but is now. That's an example of something that he could, can do now that he couldn't do then. Before, he was using wildfire. Now, he's not. More on that later. But in front of Ares, I want to use wildfire to get close to the king and show him what else can be done with it. I'll light my sword on fire. Maybe he even read about this as a thing that Red Priest used to do. So he's like, well, I can't make my sword light the way that the Red Priest of old can do, but I can find a manual way of doing that. So I'm guessing it started under Ares. This was maybe a, him lighting his swords on fire was something Robert loved, but I bet it started with Ares because he would have thought that Ares would be the one to like this. But how does that resonate with y'all? Does that make any sense? Or 
think I'm missing something here, maybe. I think it makes sense. I think if he saw someone do it one time in mirror, he's like, whoa, that's cool. Like, he might have just thought it was cool and always wanted to do it, but couldn't get his hands on wildfire. <laughs> Now's his chance. You know? And then eventually he might learn it was really effective in battle. Like in the melee, he's like, mm, actually, this is great. <laughs> and then he's, I'm going to keep doing this. Tyrion mentions that wildfire on a sword can last for like an hour, which most battles don't take an hour. I mean, battles, like especially fights like a melee probably doesn't take a whole hour. Although sometimes it would. Sometimes it would. Because we, we hear of that yeah. happening. We hear of it going out once or twice. It depends on what kind of a battle, how big of a scale. There's yeah, a lot of variables. But like true. melees and tournaments in IRL took all day. It took many hours. That's true. Yeah. They, they, but they were spread out more. Yeah, than it's like, an you know, event. When we see it's organized. It, yeah. Yeah. We, we see it's the, the way we envision it in tournaments and not just Game of Thrones, but maybe like I don't know, medieval lore or whatever. It's like on a field with a bunch of people standing around watching. But real melees like spread took out. place like over many square miles. Which real yeah. battles would too. So you're right. Like right. that would also... Which is what they were practicing for yeah. ostensibly. Which he could, of course, now Thoris could just, if the battle's been going for a while, presumably he'd just grab another sword off the ground and maybe yeah. light that one instead. You know? <laughs> light it up. <laughs> yeah, light it up. Anyway, I, I feel like there's a lot of room here for this stuff starting under Ares, only for it to just work better under Robert, which is very ironic considering Ares seemed to have the... <laughs> the predisposition for all this stuff. But maybe Ares just, Ares is paranoid and weird and Thoris is boisterous and just a different kind of personality. It makes, he is more like Robert. It makes sense. He, without some of Robert's worst qualities, what with some of them, although with the also notable difference that Thoros has changed into somebody that's much more admirable. Whereas before he was a lot like Robert, which is not very particularly admirable. Mm. <laughs> so if it was later in the timeline... Thoros might have actually been able to impress Ares because he would have had his real powers, the powers he has now. Like, lighting his sword without wildfire, just all of a sudden, poof. You know, like, whoa, that's neat. How do you do that? But we're like 20, 25 years before he can do those things, which also really emphasizes how long he's just been going through the motions. This is a guy who became very jaded and drunk and just aimless, kind of. He wasn't actually, yeah, he got along with Robert, but he wasn't really... He didn't really get him any closer to R'hllor, did he? It doesn't really seem like that was part of it. Like, yeah, we're drinking buddies, but we're not like, this isn't building towards his ultimate goal of converting him. It didn't seem like it was heading. He's just like, ah, I'm just having a good time. That's really important because when, when Thoros has his like reawakening as a priest, it's important to realize how long he's been in this state of eh, just hanging out, drinking wine. His beliefs aren't particularly strong. And then it just, boom snaps and things start happening so quickly and what a huge turnaround that must be but we're so well before that point happening in the timeline as we work our way towards that what would have been like like he would have been around to see tywin his hand for example under Ares, and he hates the lannisters he didn't necessarily hate them right away but over time there's all these things that gave him a lot of bias against the lannisters he still kind of has this like i'm a priest i try to be as neutral as possible about issues, try to try not to take sides between, especially when it's a matter, matter of violence. But he just has a lot against the Lannisters, as we'll see stack up over time here. Nina says, it's, it's also possible Thoros was unwilling or unable to participate in purely politically motivated burnings of people, especially while Ares had not accepted the Lord of Light. Unlike Melisandre, who was willing to use the political burnings of Stannis' enemies as Relorite sacrifices, and Stannis had actually committed himself to the religion. So like, Thoros can't, claim these have anything to do with R'hllor if Ares is just doing it because he's cruel and mad. He's like, I don't, there's no religious thing. We don't want to claim this. This is, there's no religion behind this. There's no good 
involved in this. I mean, arguably there's no good anyway, but <laughs> still. <laughs> arguably there is some. Like it's I point this out all the time, but like in our actual real world lives, you can't cure cancer by burning someone alive. Yeah. But if you could, mm-hmm. we might have a different definition of morality. We might look at society a little bit differently. That's yeah. true. That would be that would be odd, yes. Robert Trebillion breaks out. As far as we know, he was neutral. I mean, the, he may have looked to the Red Temple for advice, but the war, rebellion was so quick by the time they may have deliberated on it, the war was over, or maybe he just decided neutrality was the best policy and regardless of advice outside, he didn't like Ares that much. He might not have minded <laughs> being overthrown. He's like, oh, I wasn't getting anywhere with this guy. Maybe I'll get somewhere with Rhaegar. Maybe I'll get somewhere with Robert, whoever else wins. After all, Rhaegar was prophecy-minded. He had talked about, like, the Bleeding Star and all this other stuff. So maybe he would have made progress with Rhaegar. So maybe Thoris is just like, sit back, see what happens, don't get involved. But he couldn't help but at least feel something, take sides when he saw those bodies laid at the throne room. The bodies of Rhaenys and Aegon, the Targaryen children, laid under the red Lannister cloaks that Ned talks about, that Jamie talks about. Boros was there for that. Probably just because he was living in the throne room, or living in the, <laughs> living in the throne room, living in the <laughs> Red Keep, and just was there for it. He was able to just come down and see the big moment when the transfer of power is happening, and Robert comes in, and he was very disturbed by that. If Ares was mad enough, he might not hardly know or care about what some priest from R'hllor is doing. Good in point, court, good point, you know? yeah. But maybe someone, I don't know if like maybe Tywin or some other some other agent of court might have seen some value or some potential value in this guy and kept him fed. Maybe they just, owls. you know, the, they yeah. recognize the Red Temple, the priests of R'hllor are a powerful organization. He doesn't want to upset them. He maybe doesn't care too much. So he just keeps them at arm's length. He's like, well, I don't want to offend yeah. them, but I also don't really have time for him, so... Kind of put I partly bring this up, and things could certainly change a lot once Robert does become king. But there's a lot in the middle there that we don't really yeah. know, like where he stood. Was he? Did he see Ned's dad and brother get burned? Like if he was at court to see the the. No, he probably did. That's a great point. I didn't think about that. The Targaryen kids brought in dead. Was he at court to see the? Wouldn't have been his first with the Starks. Wouldn't have been his yeah. first burning that he saw, human burning he saw. But yeah, he he would have maybe saw the lack of justice and just the cruelty there, and been like, yeah. I wonder if there's any chance he was aware of the wildfire hidden beneath the cities. That is a very interesting how much question. Or what, yeah, what he know? taught, what he knew about with the pyromancers, like whether he was friendly with the pyromancers, like that he's a red priest, a fire guy, you know, maybe they care. Maybe they're like, yeah, let's talk do to the other fire guys. Do all fire guys get along? Yeah, do all fire guys get along? They're like, ah, <laughs> oh, no, nah, they, it's just like everything else. Like, no, nah, he's a green fire guy. Yeah. He's a red fire guy. <laughs> Thoris left the toaster oven on one time. <laughs> now, <laughs> uh, you know, I also wonder at one point, doesn't Jamie ask about Thoris? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder what kind of relationship Jamie and Thoris had, you know, especially if Jamie was like really frustrated with Aries. Maybe Thoris was also frustrated that they were ever in each other's ears. If maybe that's how Jamie became aware that there was all the wire fire on, around the city. Did Thoros let him know that? Mm, I think he knew. Vice well, versa. He, he had talked about it. I think his, his pyromancers talked about it. But yeah, maybe Thoros had heard about it. I think Jamie just heard them talking about it, if I remember correctly. He just heard the pyromancers and Aries talking about it. But that doesn't mean Thoros didn't know. He might have been around for some of those conversations. And I, it doesn't it doesn't sound like Thoros was included in these things because he wasn't in Aries' favor. It sounds like if he's being held at arm's length, he wasn't privy to these things. It is possible he had his own relationship with the pyromancers. That's a really good possibility there. 
Yeah. Do fire guys stick together? Yeah. <laughs> and it is right there. As we know, the, the Pyromancer's Guild is close by. It's not at the Red Keep, but it's, uh, it's close. It's under the Great Sept. Let's go forward to the reign of Robert. King Robert drinking buddy. Here's a quote. King Robert was fond of me, though. The first time I rode into a melee with a flaming sword, Kevin Lannister's horse reared and threw him, and his grace laughed so hard I thought he might rupture. The Red Priest smiled at the memory. Yeah, quite a lot in common, these two. Big guys who love to fight, have incredible courage, just ferociousness, drinking, feasting, chasing women, all that stuff. They have all those things in common. Two peas in a pod. In fact, someone called them two peas in a pod. I think it was Jamie. It might have been Tyrion. But a lot of people have noticed their similarity. It isn't just a line here or two there. There's multiple characters that have reflected on this. A little cynical too, right? Yes. I, I didn't think of that till just now, but I feel like Robert was a little cynical. Thoros seems a little cynical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Thoros, source of cynicism falls away rapidly, like instantly <laughs> when the resurrection happens, but nothing, Robert didn't live long enough to have a moment like that if such a thing was even possible for him. He's not, he doesn't have the, the seed of faith that Thoros has. I don't know if Robert ever had anything like that. I would say Thoros, if it did fall away, it came back under Lady Stoneheart. He oh, seems yeah. pretty cynical again, yeah, he, talking to Brienne. You're right. right. Like it came back and then it maybe is starting to fall off again because of what they're mm -hmm. doing with it all. Great point. More on that later. Gendry says Tabo, Mott, and Thoros would argue over the price of new swords because he would come in and buy a new sword. But Tyrion says Robert always paid for those swords. So this is just Thoros being like stubborn and not wanting... Tabo to get away with this over his friend. It's kind of like a like low-level loyalty here. He's like, I'm not letting you rip my friend off, you know, even though he's the king and can easily afford this. He's like, Tabo's like, come on, man. Let me get a little extra out of this. Let me, let me, char let me overcharge the kid. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's yeah. actually a pretty important little moment there. And Thoros might have been cool if he actually wanted a little extra, but he wanted double, yeah, right? Yeah. He wasn't trying to get 5% bonus. He was trying to get 100% bonus. You can easily <laughs> see how someone would just be like, okay, whatever, it's not my money. I don't care. But Thoros, you're right. Like, it's a small bit of loyalty, stubbornness, justice. I think, I think you put it right there. It's like, it's wrong to do that. So Thoros is going to say something about it. He's not a quiet man. He's not passive. So he says something. I, I like that. I, I like it's, it's a very small thing, but it's a kind of small character moment. But I'm like, Good on you, Thoros. Don't let that guy cheat your friend. Because it's not just the king. It's, it's the principle. Yeah, and he is your friend, too. And he applied that same principle to, like, letting Sandor go later on. True. He's right? like, no, he won his trial. We got to believe in these trials. These trials aren't just show... You guys joke about these trials just being show trials. He's like, yeah, he gives them a trial. And then he hangs them. <laughs> you know, they laugh about it like it's all just a joke. He's like, like no, he won his trial. We got to be serious about that. Yeah, you're right. He takes these things seriously. So I like that. I like that about him. So fast forward to the Greyjoy Rebellion. Let's have another quote. He liked feasts and tourneys. That was why King Robert was so fond of him. And this Thoros was brave. When the walls of Pike crashed down, he was the first through the breach. He fought with one of his flaming swords, setting iron men afire with every slash. First through the breach. That is just wild. Picturing that. I mean, just... Woo, amazing. Just, I love it. It's so cool. And he, since he probably didn't fight in the rebellion, maybe one of the first times he had a real fight outside of a melee, which is, you know, you can get hurt and killed in melee, but like people are trying, literally trying to kill you rather than just trying to win. And trying to kill you first because yeah. you're first to the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're, but people are afraid of you. Like, again, like you said, I, maybe I'll go fight somebody else. The guy who's yeah. every swing of his sword lights you on fire, whether he connects or not. If it hits your shield, your shield catches on fire. Even if he doesn't penetrate your armor, your cloak is on fire. It's like, damn, that didn't hurt, but now I'm on fire, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that, I would rather fight 
anyone else there, pretty much. <laughs> so he probably didn't. It probably wasn't his actual first fight, though, because there were fights before they got to Pike. Like, they landed on the island and fought at the port, and then there were battles on the way there. But this may have been his first, like, real war. And let's not forget, one of the reasons this war happened was Balon Greyjoy thought Robert was a weak king, that people wouldn't unite behind him. Thoros is Robert's friend at this point. Like, so he's not just leading maybe just some of that suicidal, like, there's no point to life kind of a- attitude, but also he's representing his friend here. That's, that's Robert. You know, he wants to do right by his drinking buddy. <laughs> you can also imagine maybe he got pushed into it. Maybe after the third battle yeah. leading up to this siege of Pike itself, everyone was like, Thor, put Thor. <laughs> so like, like, they saw how effective his flaming sword was elsewhere. That's true. They wouldn't have seen it. What have I done to myself? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Like everybody else would have been like a real, like, I want to see, he would have been talked about a lot. Like, let's see, I wonder how he's going to do in like a real battle. Like, wow, he was really good. Yeah. Let's put him in front. I totally agree with you, Sean. Like he would have been the talk of the battle and he still is just like his appearance and his fire sword. A lot of people talk about him later, like Tyrion, Varys, Jaime. They're just all, almost like half the POV characters think about Thoros at some point. And the thing they think about is usually his fire sword, his going through the walls of Pike, his bravery, or all three. Because those three things are pretty much overlapping. Or that he's drinks a lot or whatever. Also his bigness. Yeah, his bigness yeah. and his drinkitude. <laughs> <laughs> and Nina agrees, this may have been a sign of Thoros' personal affection for and loyalty to Robert. I think it's kind of underplayed here, under-acknowledged quality of Thoros's entire arc is his friendship with Robert. Because we don't see it. We never actually see on screen Robert and Thoros hanging out, chatting, talking, drinking. It's all off screen. It's all a thing of the past. We never actually see it, even though it's attested to by so many people. Even though they maybe weren't great people, maybe they were great for each other. They were friends and friendship is a meaningful thing. It's an important thing. Robert may have been Thoros may have encouraged some of his negativity, but he may have made him a better person in other ways with his sense of justice and other things. I don't know. Some of that may have rubbed up on Robert. Maybe I'm being too optimistic about it. But anyway, Jorah was knighted for charging through the breach behind Thoros for his bravery there. And that. so you got to think that if Jorah got knighted, then Thoros got knighted too. Because he, he does, Wikipedia has the title of him being a sir. He does not, he's not called Sir Thoros because he's the red priest Thoros of Mir. But it seems like Sir Thoros, the Red Priest of Mirror. Yeah. <laughs> when we hear that all the Brotherhood Without Banners have been knighted by Beric, I feel like Thoros was probably already knighted before. But if for some reason he was like chewbacca and ignored for his contributions while everyone else is getting medals and awards and knightings, you know, and they're like, Princess Leia is putting them in. Thoros is like, dude, I was Whoa. first. <laughs> <laughs> so unless that happened, and I really don't think it would have because it's Robert, like it's his friend, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. Maybe he rejected it. Maybe he's like, actually, I don't want to be a knight. I'm not. That, that's, that also makes sense. But Wikipedia says he was knighted. I wouldn't put that as a sure thing. A little bit of possible dispute there. Okay, so here's another angle to this, though. This is a guy who's a little dissolute, like not very zealous, not even close to zealous pretty lax on the priest side, the religious side of his beliefs. Maybe going in first and surviving, would that restore some of your faith? What do you think? You think like Relore's watching over, like all the people dying around him and he makes it through? What do you think? Like, am I reading too much into it or? Might, but it might also add to, I, I don't know if I'm, this is quite the right phrase, but it might add to his death wish. It might add to his, it doesn't matter anyway, mentality. Like might as well, like, I don't know, I lived last time, I'll try it again. I could see it being as nihilistic as faithful. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
I'm not sure that's the case, but I could I could see that. You know? Also, he was praised a lot for it. Like, like he would have been more his personal regard, other people's regard for him would have been higher after the Great Joy Rebellion. He rather than the guy that just hangs out and drinks with Robert, maybe wins a melee here and there. He's actually proved himself in the field. And in a culture like this, it's everything, right? Like now he's a, a warrior that's proven himself that went in first, did the bravest thing you can imagine, live to tell another day, fight another day. That might make him feel better about himself, right? With now people recognize him when he's walking around, people are like, hey, Thoros, what's up, man? You know, like they would, from then on, he's just a more popular figure. So maybe that would just raise his self-esteem if that's something he had any issues with. I don't know. There's also just, I don't know, some normal human behavior, like the stimulus response. You know, you, you do something, you get rewarded for it. Oh, you do it again. You get rewarded again. Oh, well, okay, you're going to keep doing that thing. So yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe there's some amount of that. Right? Maybe he thought that it, it went well. Maybe this is, this is where Relore wants me. This is what Relore wants me to be doing, stuff like this. Like he felt alive, you know, things like that. Mm, yeah. Robert loved tourneys. Thoros had a great record in them. What are the odds that Thoros, as his drinking buddy, was encouraging Robert in his habit of holding lots of tournaments? Yeah, I never thought about that before this episode. It's like, yeah, Thoros could talking in his ear. He's like, yeah, Robert, we could do this, we could do that. They both just love tournaments. So like, it seems like he would be part of the, the team in encouraging Robert to do it. You we can imagine good old boys reliving their glory days. Yep. <laughs> and, and when you can like just do it again, when Robert doesn't care about the cost, doesn't have any, isn't tending to any of the responsibilities, yeah, might as well have another tournament. Thoros, <laughs> even if Thoros isn't actively, intentionally doing it, he might incidentally be encouraging, causing Robert to do it more often than he would have. Yep. He's apparently beat Sandor three times with his wildfire sword in a melee. Robert loved it every time. Here's one time where he lost. We see Joffrey's name day tournament in A Clash of Kings. It's a tournament of gnats because the war is happening. It's the one where Sandor's like, I'm not even going to get in. I'm not even going to bother. It's the one where Tommen has his great line about where you are. We're supposed to be children. We're childish. And Marcel has all that. But the year before, they had the same name day tournament. And Davos was there. And he saw it. And here is his recollection. You remember the red priest, Thoros of Mir, and the flaming sword he'd wielded in the melee? The man had made for a colorful spectacle, his red robes flapping while his blade writhed with pale green flames. But everyone knew there was no true magic to it, and in the end, his fire had guttered out, and bronze Jan Royce had brained him with a common mace. <laughs> That's one of the examples of the fire going out. There we go. <laughs> he's having these thoughts, Davos is, because he's just been told the story of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa and Lightbringer about a flaming sword, and he's like, I don't want to be that kind of hero. And then it makes him think of the other flaming sword he's seen, which is a really excellent piece of writing there because yeah, of course a person's going to think of other flaming swords. That's such a rare thing, even in a fantasy realm like this. And because it makes Davos think about the differences between Mel and Thoros, which care two characters that have a lot in common that aren't on screen at the same time yet. And he doesn't have her depth of belief or depth of pretension, perhaps, however you want to look at it for certain things. So she brings a fake Lightbringer, which Mel creates for Stannis. Thoros does something that is obviously not magic. Everybody knows what Thoros is doing is not magic. Everybody knows it's wildfire. Until later, when it is magic, but <laughs> we're not quite there yet. The wildfire might seem kind of mystical. It still might have a similar impact, you know? Yeah. When you, when you see a magician, like, do some card trick and pull the ace of spades out of your back pocket, like... You know, there's not really magic in the world, but you're still impressed with how'd you do that? Yeah, it's still, it's like still cool. Earned, yeah. They earned a little bit of your respect and intrigue, you know. Definitely. And there's, yeah, like wielding a fire sword can't be just as simple as 
like wielding a regular sword, but it's on fire. There's got to be more to it and certain things that work better and certain things that don't and things you have to watch out for, like catching your own hair on fire and <laughs> training There's your own horse to not involved, be afraid of it. certain talent involved. Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that it's, it's not as simple as it. Don't try this at home, kids. So something that Rita got me thinking about just like right before we were about to start this. Stannis would have known Thoros, at least known who he was, if not had some interactions with him, he wouldn't have been very aware of him. I wonder how that impacted Melisandre's arrival. Mm. How did he perceive her with... Having known... His preconceived notion of a red piece is Thoros. How different Mm. is Melisandre? Would he have been more suspicious of her or more receptive to her because of Thoros? That's a great point. You wonder, yeah, maybe that would have been his preconceived notion. Remember that part of the way Melisandre got close to Stannis was through Selyse. Melisandre targeted her first, and then when she was converted, then it was like they were, it was like a two-pronged assault. It was both of them. So that that probably helped. That was was smooth of Melisandre. And you may be right as to one of the reasons why she needed to be smooth with it like that was because he may have, she may have had, he may have had preconceived notions. Even if Melisandre didn't know who the preconceived notion was formed based off, like, even though she may not have known Stannis knew Thoros, but she's like, well, if any, if he's known any red priest before, well, I'm going to reset his beliefs here on what that means. Incidentally, how long ago, at what point did Melisandre arrive to Stannis? A, a couple of years before the books, not, not super so, long. So she would be aware of Thoros also. Yeah. She would know about would. this red priest well, and maybe. these melees she, and had this flaming Yeah, store. you'd think she would have. You'd think she would. You're right. Like, yeah. be aware. If she didn't know about him right away, she would have heard about him probably. Because there's plenty of... Like, there's always yeah. Stannis never brought him up to her. Yeah, like, somebody I mean, would have. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, you think somebody but would have, like, not him. Yeah. And would Thoros be aware of Melisandre? How aware would he be? He might not be as aware of her. Up? Yeah, he might not yeah. be. He might not be as aware. Of her. But probably but you is can though. imagine. He probably is. Yeah, though, maybe not. Court. But he was at the Red Keep when she arrived, and people talked about her. Yeah, it never gets mentioned. It but I, I feel yeah. like they've got to be at least somewhat aware of each other yeah. and somewhat influencing other people's perspective of each other and R'hllor in general. I think it it's, falls in the category of Ned never thinking about directly about John's parentage or Arya not thinking about the Iron Bank while in Bravos. It's one of those things where yeah. George just kind of like, he doesn't want people to think too much about Melisandre and Thoros until later. Until they maybe yeah. are together, or until those plot points. Maybe are more he hasn't decided together. what the relationship is, or will be, yeah. or what people would think of them. Or maybe he doesn't want us to know. Yeah, but absolutely. But it's something I my mind started spinning on that I haven't fully processed yet. But welcome anyone in the audience's yeah. thoughts. Another interesting lack from Thoros is that he was not on the royal hunt that Robert was received his mortal wound as friends, as drinking buddies. Not unlikely that he would have been there. That's not strange. It's not suspicious, but it's of note. It's like, huh, he wasn't there. They Had he been there, maybe it would have been a little different. I don't know. Tywin then, you know, we have the incident with Tyrion being captured by Catelyn, which sets off Tywin. But remember what his plan was. His plan was capture Ned. He thought he was going to capture Ned because he thought Ned's a northerner. He'll go dispense justice personally. Not the worst idea. Tywin was probably right about that. But Jamie screws the plan up by breaking Ned's leg. If it wasn't for those... Pesky kids. So. <laughs> yeah. Or just that one pesky kid. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tyrion and Cersei ruined Tywin's plans plenty also. That's true. Yeah. Joffrey. Yeah. Joffrey. Yeah. 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 You're right. Ned, this is an important point here. Ned chooses Thoros as one of the like five captains of this squad to go. Sorry, I can't. I can't stop thinking of the Lannisters as, this, as the Scooby Doo gang now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
those 120 men go out and as they're getting ready, Varus skulls Ned for not sending lords. He's like, look, if you were going to go against the Lannisters, you might want to put the Tyrells on your side so that the Tyrells are against the Lannisters and then that's better for you. Which is a fair point. But Ned's argument is, well, I don't want this to be, this is supposed to be justice, not revenge. And if I send Loras, it's going to be that. And also Loras is young and maybe isn't going to be thinking about all the things that need to be thought about. Or might not follow the instructions of these other people yeah. who you might think he has a higher station than. Exactly. Also a great point. Yeah, he may not listen to Beric Dondarrion, even though Beric's a full lord and is, outranks him. Loras Tyrell might not listen to him. He's like, yeah, well, I don't have to listen to you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me if I ignore your orders? It's one of those things. Like, what are you going to do about it? Like, I don't know. What, I don't know what Barrack would do about it. Probably not much. He doesn't want to upset and, the Tyrells either. <laughs> need to think too of those different perspectives. You know, Ned takes a lot of flack for not, I don't know, being smart or getting the political game, but he knows something there that Barris doesn't. Barris is thinking about the big picture of politics of how this is going to play out. Ned is thinking about the actual battlefield role yes. that's going to come into play. You know, true that. And, and so Barris has a point, but Ned does too. And he also knows that. One of Tywin's main weapons is bribery. He knows the Lannister gold is used as a weapon. There's no chance you're going to bribe Thoris of Mir, especially to be a Lannister. He hates the Lannisters, and Ned knows that. Ned was in the throne room with Thoros when those bodies were laid at the throne room, at the, the Targaryen children were laid at the feet of Robert, and Thoros hated it. So he's already predisposed to be against the Lannisters, and this is the man he's being sent against is Gregor, the one who specifically killed one of those children and other people and killed Aelia as well. Thoros already knows who he's up against. And Ned knows that Thoros knows. And Ned knows that Thoros charged through the breach <laughs> at Pike. <laughs> so he's like, this guy is battle-tested, real battle. Where the Knight of Flowers, like, he jousts well, but like, uh, to be fair, Loras does prove himself later. But Ned doesn't know that at this point. He's like, he's not tested yet, you know? And his rank works against him. He's like, if he was just another, if he was a highly talented, lowborn knight, Sure, send him along. They could use another sword. But Loras, eh, his, his rank actually throws things off a little bit, even though from Varus's perspective, his rank is a huge benefit because of the bigger picture. So yeah, it is a really interesting point. Or, Ned gets called stupid there, like you say, Sean, but Ned's got some very intelligent angles on this, actually. Yeah. Also, if this was a jousting competition, sure, send Loras. But this is going to be a battle in a field against the animal Gregor. Yeah. Like, he's not going to follow the rules and line up with his jousting stick. You know, he's this is... And if he sends Loras and gets him killed, then maybe the that might turn Pygarden against you, yeah. right? Rather than... They might be upset with you for getting Loras killed, you know? Yeah, so another aspect here, Nina, reminds us that, hey, and also Robert's friendship with Thoros is key here, too. Like... Ned's sending someone who's a friend of Robert and they're being sent in the name of King Robert. So that's a big deal. And we just saw how Thoris is, cares about justice a little bit. He cares about things being right. He cares about righteousness a bit, even though he's lazy maybe and sloppy, whatever. He does have things that matter to him. And this is one of them. Yet again, another thing, it's just Thoris is not involved in the politics of the realm as much either. So there's just an apolitical actor here is a good person to send. Someone who has a personal stake, but not a political stake is actually a pretty astute choice. So one of the pieces of this I'm super curious about, when Ned instructs those different people to assemble 20 men to go on this mission, they're all lords with bannermen, people kind of under their command, if you will. Yeah. The, the armies, soldiers, they're, they're surrounded by them and in charge of them. Where's Thoros supposed to get yeah, 20 men? Yeah, where are his 20 men? Who's his 20 good men? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. I, I wonder if they're just drinking buddies. Does he have acolytes? Has he made some attempt to establish a purchase sort? Did Robert give him personal guards? You know, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, maybe mentors that he teaches how to fight young knights. And he, 
I don't or know. Maybe he didn't I, I can bring, imagine, did, he, but... did, he, did he just fail and bring 20 men? Yeah, we know maybe, that, maybe. like, was he told to bring 20 men and did he actually go find the 20 men? Yeah, maybe just Barrack brought 40. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, goes, he's like, hey, I don't have like, I don't like people. Yeah. like, yeah, I, could, I, I think about, three. like, Dunk in the Trial of Seven, right, ever, like, oh, when he had yeah. to, like, find people there and that's this is a whole different thing this is you like giving up like months of your you know what of your yeah. life or whatever like that's a big ask to come to someone and be like hey drinking yeah. buddies <laughs> let's go to war against gregor yeah. yeah i know you hate gregor so go fight him <laughs> it's like wait i hate him i don't know i don't know about that anyway let's take a moment to talk about this episode sponsor smile brilliant I've been going through my teeth whitening journey and we're making some progress, but we're only about a third of the way through. So I want to talk about something else this time. Teeth grinding. I used to grind my teeth. One of the reasons I want to bring it up is because I have this experience as well. Something I have been through personally. I'm a Stannis, right? If you grind your teeth, you're a Stannis. We can kind of relate to that, right? It can cause pretty serious problems long-term. Obviously, it can damage your teeth. It can also cause neck aches, headaches, tension, Back of the neck in particular, but also some of these frontal muscles can get really, you can end up having them be in tension all night while you're sleeping. That can be really bad. Normally, the products to address this can cost $450 to $750. From Smile Brilliant, you can get them from, from $100 to $170. That includes free shipping, a free impression kit, because you got to get your teeth impressions before they can send you the night guards that will actually fit perfectly onto your teeth. And that includes... With the moderate package, the middle grade option, there's three levels of pricing there. The middle grade life package gives you reorders on your night guards for $35 for the rest of your life. You can reorder them. Now, if you're grinding your teeth on a night guard, eventually it's going to wear down. They'll last six months to a year, depending on how severe your grinding is. So it's something you need to reset, like a toothbrush or Pretty much anything that goes into your mouth is going to have to be reset at some point. The mouth is a place of destructiveness, <laughs> chewing and crunching <laughs> and saliva and all sorts of stuff. Lots going on in there, you know. Really great options here, folks. Head over to smilebrilliant.com, get custom fitted teeth whitening or night guard trays. They have a whole suite of professional oral care products. Your teeth are super important. You don't want to go through life with painful or painful teeth or teeth that you are afraid to show to the world. It's really not worth it. A little bit can go a long way. Take care of it before it gets bad. Smilebrilliant.com and save 20% with the code Westeros. It's 20%. Smilebrilliant.com. Westeros is your code. A couple questions from folks here. Richard Seymour says, theory, Makoro could be from a shy. The not eating thing and other magic stuff has nothing to do with Red Priest and everything to do with Shadow Bond. Yeah, see, that is part of why it's a weird question because these Red Priests refuse to put themselves in a simple category where they only use the magic of Relore. They're always, they're always learning other disciplines like in D&D where people are like, I'm an illusionist, but I also have a little bit of evocation, a little bit of conjuring, a little bit of necromancy. Yeah, it's a similar kind of thing here. George doesn't have them put in these little neat corners or categories. So, yeah. I could see that. I feel like Makoro is from Volantis because if that's where he operates, but Ashai is certainly possible. Technically, he could be not from Ashai, but he could 
have studied in a shy and be a shadow binder and That's still true. be from Volantis and be a, both of those things could be true. That's true. Mel, it said Melisandre of a shy, but she may not be from a shy because she was sold yeah. as a slave as a child. Yeah. So she I mean, even you in your know. example earlier, when you said, oh, but Aziz of, of, of Atlanta and Joe of Atlanta, you're not Aziz of Atlanta, really, because you came true. from elsewhere. You you, yeah. you applied. You said I was a Shea of Hawaii. And I'm like, I'm of Atlanta right now. I would say of Atlanta, not of Hawaii. I don't think someone has to necessarily have been born somewhere or even have lived the first childhood years somewhere to be of somewhere like life is long and you could you could be of somewhere after 10 20 years somewhere Mm, that's a good uh, that's a good point i like that take Dorner's Dame says, what does it say? It says, though they were both oh. sent off to priests from different associate religions, I do think Ario Hota and Thoros are interesting characters to compare. Oh, yes. Both dedicated, you know, to a different faith and... and kind of isolated from their homeland. You but know, surrounding people of power, you know, so yeah. they're in the life, ultimately. Having a lot, like being very observant, being large guys, being warriors. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. true, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. A great catch, Dornish Dame. Look, give... Leave it to Dornish Dame to bring the Dornish angle. Yeah, that's true. The Dornish <laughs> connection there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dornish Dame also says, Ned is quite smart with his choices. Thoros is close to Robert. Wild and Dondarrion are Stormland houses, which are uh, should also be somewhat loyal to Robert. And Mallory, House Mallory's from the Crownlands. So not just avoiding pro-Lannister houses, but picking Stormlanders and Crownlanders who should be pro-Robert. So yeah. Ned was not thinking like Varus, but he wasn't just picking people at random either. He had he had a plan. It's true because like he could have done that group, and you just put one like Lannister loyalist in there, and that person just blows the whole thing up, it betrays everyone, or it just takes one bad choice for that that group to be terrible. You're totally right, and that's probably what happened anyway. Because some pro Lannister person probably did run off yeah. from that that scene and mm-hmm. tell Tywin because Tywin was prepared for this. Tywin knew because yeah. Tywin had a plan too. I said Ned had a plan. Tywin had a plan too. They seemed well enough prepared, right? They had 120 men. They're just going after one guy, right? Just Gregor Clegane, even though yeah. he's a big man. But here's Harwin's account. It's told to Arya. A nice long quote. Your father's leg was broken when his horse fell on him. So Lord Eddard couldn't go west. He sent Lord Barak instead. With 20 of his own men and 20 from Winterfell, me among them. There were others besides. Thoros and Sir Raymond Derry and their men. Sir Glad and Wild. A lord named Lothar Mallory. But Gregor was waiting for us at the Mummer's Ford with men concealed on both banks. As we crossed, he fell upon us from front and rear. I saw the mountain slay Raymond Derry with a single blow so terrible that it took Derry's arm off at the elbow and killed the horse beneath him, too. Glad and Wild died there with him, and Lord Mallory was ridden down and drowned. We had lions on every side, and I thought I was doomed with the rest. But Alan shouted commands and restored order to our ranks. And those still a horse rallied around Thoros and cut our way free. Six score we'd been that morning. By dark, no more than two score were left, and Lord Barrett was gravely wounded. Thoros leads the retreat. That's pretty important. It makes sense. Again, rally around the guy that's the most visible on the battlefield. That's a very useful thing. Like, yeah, the the huge guy in red with the flaming sword, go to him. A lot easier than to go to the guy in black. Which guy? Who? (laughs) Which one is that? Another reason why he's really valuable on the battlefield, he's also loud like Robert, has a big loud voice, which is very useful on the battlefield when it's, it's chaos and everything is at high volume. A lot of the great qualities there are shown. 
The flaming sword scatters enemies. So having him in the front is really effective as well. You want the guy that throws off the enemy on the initial charge. Someone like Gregor, someone who throws formations off. And for the retreat, someone who's going to clear a path, yeah. right? His flaming sword might get people steering clear, Great run point. behind him. Yeah, yeah they, they don't want to face that. The horses especially don't want to face that. And the horses that are on your side maybe are used to it because they've seen it a few times, whereas the horses on the enemy's side are like, ah, flaming sword, scary. And not too scary because, I mean, horses are used to torches and stuff. It's not like they haven't seen fire on a regular basis. But still, something scary about that big green fl- flaming sword because... Lots of horses throw their riders. We've seen that. And not to mention, he's just big and ferocious and strong. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, when, that is tough enough to face. So this battle, really nasty. And this leads to directly to the Brotherhood Without Banners. It's super important to think about. They left the keep on the mission from the king. And they're like, wait a minute. Now we're rebels? <laughs> it's so backwards, so strange, and so unlike the experience of almost all the rest of the characters in the series. And it's not just Thoros here, but we have another nice lengthy quote to describe the experience for the group. We were so few that all we could do was harry the rear, but we told each other that we'd join up with King Robert when he marched west to crush Lord Tywin's rebellion. Only then we heard that Robert was dead, and Lord Eddard as well, and Cersei Lannister's whelp had ascended the Iron Throne. That turned the whole world on its head. We'd been sent out by the king's hand to deal with outlaws, you see. Now we were the outlaws, and Lord Tywin was handed the king. There was some wanted to yield then, but Lord Derek wouldn't hear of it. We were still kingsmen, he said, and these were the king's people. The lions were savaging. If we could not fight for Robert, we would fight for them, till every man of us was dead. And so we did. But as we fought, something queer happened. For every man we lost, two showed up to take his place. A few were knights or squires of gentle birth, but most were common men, field hands and fiddlers and innkeepers servants and shoemakers, even two septons, men of all sorts, and women too, children, dogs. Gregor's ambush party was just the advance of Tywin's entire army. Put yourself in Thoros of Mir's perspective here. They're going out to do King's Justice in the name of his good friend Robert. All of a sudden, they're ambushed. Two-thirds of their men are killed. A lot of Thoros's friends probably in that group. So it's personal at this point, but they're still about the king's <laughs> justice, right? And they're like, oh my God, this isn't just an ambush. This is a full-blown rebellion because they see Tywin's whole army go by. They're like, holy crap, this is a big deal. This isn't just a, a small excursion here. We're in the midst of an outbreak of civil war. And so as they say, well, we couldn't do much about it. All we could do is like attack their foraging parties. There's only 40 of us. And you know, even though they were growing, that growth took time. And we're talking about the immediate aftermath of the Battle of the Lumbers Ford before this recruitment drive started and before they started to grow in, into a real force to be reckoned with. The stuff with Tywin happened really early on. So they were sent by Ned, hand to the king. And while they're out in the field, Tywin becomes hand to the king. Like, what? What are they supposed to do? Robert, the guy that they're honorably fighting for, dies. It's like Tywin did rebel, but won. It's like he won his little rebellion there and Joffrey is on the throne now. And they're like, now we're outlaws? What? <laughs> Sansa at court is hearing all this. And here's Pycelle read all this list of traitors. People who, if they don't come and bend the knee, and Thoros' name is listed among some big names. Stannis, Renly, the Royces, the Tyrells, the Martells, Thoros of Mir. You know, like, like okay. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's a, he's a notable figure. 
Nina says, this is a radical shift in the paradigm for Thoros and the rest of that original band. As Harwin would go on to explain to Arya, Harwin, of course, was amongst the men that Ned sent from his group. He was the you know, master, he was the son of the master of horse, Hullen, who Arya finds dying during the, the coup against Ned and his family and all that. Nina continues, they had not only experienced firsthand as the Mummers forward the downfall of aristocratic leadership. The mountains slew Raymond Derry, while Gladden Wild and Lord Mower were also killed, but saw its failure secondhand as well. While still in the field ostensibly against Tywin, they faced the paradox that we were sent by the king's hand, but now to go after an outlaw, but now that outlaw is the hand of the king. The whole world turned on its head. It was an actual quote from them. Beric Dondarrion provided an answer. He was the only lord left of them. All the other like high-ranking guys were killed, but Beric said, okay, we'll just keep following our directive, which is eerily similar to what Catelyn does when she's resurrected. She's like, just continues on doing what she was doing, like, but with more focus, more intent, more single-mindedness about it. He's like, well, we were sent out to work for the king. King Robert, we're going to keep working for King Robert. But that's interesting because all the other lords and high-ranking people were dead. So only this undead knight is around for them. But of course, at this point, they're describing they've jumped past his resurrection and are talking about other things. But we have to go back. It's these innocents who suffer when the high lords play their game of thrones. That quote always comes back because it's so central to the story, to what George is trying to tell us. And this group, perfect example of that. They're like, hey, high lords, send them out to do a job. The entire (laughs) job flips halfway through because of the Game of Thrones being played. Their pieces on the board while the game was being played. The board, he said the world flipped on its head. Well, the board was flipped on the the table, (laughs) on the floor. You know, like when Aegon VI, when young Griff throws the board on the ground playing with Tyrion. And it's kind of like that. (laughs) Sivas board. Worth noting, it's flipped on its head from the perspective of these lords playing their games where the innocents suffer. Yeah. But from their perspective of rather than we're going to like represent Ned to defeat the Lannisters, we're going to protect these innocent people. Mm. That didn't change. That's true. They, yeah, they, they, they stuck to what they were going to do. You're right. Even though the world around them flipped, their duty stayed the same. They're like, well, this is what we're about. And it was great. Yeah. That's, it's really, it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And that's also in line with another theme that Martin is constantly pushing is this idea of torn loyalties. Mm. Like, what if the king tells you to do one thing and a queen tells you to do something different? And what if the king tells you to do something that's bad for the people? The point of the king is to help the people. But so anyway, this is, I think uh, they're casting off their loyalties, yeah. their oaths that Jamie is so torn between and just doing what they think is fundamentally right. They start off that way, at least. <laughs> well said. His purpose in coming to Westeros was to convert people to R'hllor. Pretty simple. Start with Ares, trickle down from there. When that failed, try with Robert. Didn't really work either. He got close to Robert, but the religion part didn't, didn't kick off. But as soon as he starts doing things in King Robert's name out in the field for the common folk, all sorts of re- results. Great example of religious syncretism. Relorist knights. All the brother without banners get knighted under the light of the seven, but with the flame of Relor. So Thoris is at last succeeding in winning people to R'hllor after 20 to 25 years of trying to trickle down through the king, he does the opposite approach, the grassroots approach, and it's working great. <laughs> they sent him to the king, didn't work. Grassroots approach, working great. Worth noting, 
that if he had resurrected Robert, <laughs> trickle down approach might have worked. Uh, like if true. he had been there when Robert got gored by the boar and brought him back alive, there might have been some other ripples. <laughs> that would have been a, that'd be a very different story. You're right, man. What a what a what if that would be. <laughs> and to be fair as well, the trickle down effect is working pretty well for Melisandre. She went after Stannis, Stannis bought in, and people are getting converted. Now, a lot of it's still pretty forcible, like at the wall. It's not all of it necessarily holding, but this is George. This is the great and wonderful dichotomy of George R. R. Martin. Like, doesn't all work the same way? Different scenarios, different people, different stuff, different results. Do you think it would have worked if he tried on Robert? Oh, no, his heart was I don't. It, I really don't know. I think, think maybe think it was Thoros or Beric that that were that, that was the important yeah. part. I guess is my point. Well, Beric just passed it on to Catelyn. What's what makes Catelyn so special in that regard? Yeah, that's kind of know? my thought. Is that like it, well, I mean, there, there could be significance to like why. R'hllor could want Catelyn alive. And that's we've, what, we've theorized on like things that Catelyn could do that could be significant in a plot sense. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that it, it could have been that it would not have worked on Robert, but it worked on Beric. It worked on Catelyn and it wouldn't have worked on like Sandor or it would have worked on Sandor. You know what I mean? I don't think it would have worked on Robert simply because the dragons hadn't been born yet. Like the official oh, like yeah, magic starts working hadn't quite happened yet. Like if Robert dies at the beginning of Clash of Kings when some yeah. of these things are starting to kick off. And but then maybe. do you think it could work? Because to me, I, I there's a part of me that thinks maybe if there is... I go back and forth. I, I have to think that there's a chance that there is some thought behind it that it isn't just co- totally random magic that people channel. I, I got to agree with you there because like otherwise like why aren't there a lot more resurrections but he just just resurrects Barrack is like what about the other why don't you want to resurrect anyone else yeah. like yeah. it's only Barrack repeatedly has he never tried has no one as no one said my brother he's dead please Thoros save yeah. him and Thoros like nah I'm not even yeah, I don't even want to try exactly cuz they I, asked yeah. they yeah. asked about Catelyn like do it on her he's like no she's been dead too long mm-hmm. but what about like all the other members of the Brotherhood that just died in the battle. Like, well, what about him? What yeah. about her? So yeah, there, yeah. I'm kind of with you. I think that it's Beric. Yeah. And and Caitlin. I don't think. I don't think it. Well, I'm mean, not to say there's no way it would have worked on Robert, but I don't think it just works on anyone he tries. Whether it, whether or not it worked on Robert still might be a question. Yeah. But yeah. We, yeah, un- we didn't have an undead Robert. We had to have an. We already have an undead Robert. Robert Strong, He's much larger <laughs> and even more formidable. But <laughs> there can only be one. There can only be one. Right? <laughs> but yeah, like, like another question is like someone who's not significant, like you know, like grit or like a like. There's a million. Like, I'm just like yeah. I don't think that it would have just worked. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Which and that's that's how Thoros sees it too, because he's like, this is the will of Relor. He's like, I don't know why. He wants Beric back, but he wants, but clearly the Lord of Light wants Beric walking around doing stuff. Everything, that's just the way a religious person operates. Like, well, if it's happening, we don't have an explanation for it. It's just the will of the gods. They have a reason. We don't, we can't perceive what that reason is. Accept that. Accept that you're not going to know what these higher beings are doing. You're like, why would you know what they're doing? You can't even see them. You know, they're so far above us. We're ants to them, you know. Why would we know? And he's a little bit more honest about it to other people outwardly, right? Like, yeah. I don't do this. It's the, the red God is there. The, the, you know, my prayer is being answered. I'm not doing it. Where Melisandre seems internally to know that it's not really her, but externally wants everyone to believe that it is. Yeah. You know, I have this power. Listen to what I'm telling you. And inside she's like, man, I hope my power is right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And that's another little interesting comparison between the two. They have the same religion. They have basically the same rank, I guess, Melisandre and Thoros do, but they have such a different approach. Melisandre's directly in the spotlight. She's out there talking big prophecies in front of people. 
moving Stannis around, make, encouraging to make big decisions, sleeping with him to encourage him even more, making shadow babies, all this other stuff, actually wielding well, magic. Doros's approach was not to sleep with Robert. <laughs> 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 he should have tried it. He had to drink with That's Robert. That's the difference between yeah. them. Yeah, he was hoping that one day they'd get drunk enough and experiment. Yeah, I mean, but maybe they did. Who knows? I mean, maybe, I mean it might have convinced him and worked it on Stannis. Have, yeah. I mean, Robert could never remember what he had done with Cersei the next day. You know, that's how Cersei was able to get away with not actually having his children. You know, he's like, Robert won't remember anyway. Just two bros being bros. Yeah, just two bros being bros. (laughs) Be like Creed. He was in a bunch of orgies. If a guy man might have gotten in there, who can know? (laughs) No no way of knowing. There's literally no way. (laughs) Literally no way. Nina writes, Thoros and Melisandre form very interesting contrast to each other. They start from roughly the same place, but Thoros is the official representative sent to convert Ares and then Robert. Melisandre is the unauthorized representative whose mission is to enlighten Stannis on what she sees as his apocalyptic destiny. Each of them also stands at the opposite ends of the spectrum of religious integration in the story. For Melisandre, nothing else matters except the fate of the world. And that's understandable. I mean, you can understand putting that first, right? It's a big deal. And if you don't take care of the apocalyptic crisis, then what else is there? There's nothing left, right? There is no life. There is no happiness. Like, happiness is a small thing to save when you have no living humans. But for Thoros, it's not so much about the apocalypse as about the here and now. Relore is a daily presence in the lives of humanity, and it's his, Thoros' job, to make his will manifest by bettering the lives of his people. Neither side is totally right or wrong, and that's great conflict. Yeah, he's more like a Septon Maribald in a lot of ways. And, and when, in fact, they encounter each other in Septon Maribald, they're like, you people are dressed as Lannisters. I got a problem with you, Pyle and Podrick and Brienne. But you, Septon Maribald, you're cool. You can go. They, and, and that was Brienne was concerned. She's like, what did you do, Matt? So, oh, we let him go. He's cool. <laughs> you know, like, oh, all right. So it's really neat to compare these. There's so many interesting religious figures all throughout this story. Thoros, personally, I find him one of the most interesting because he combines a lot of what I feel like religious people should be like, like help actually helping people go and and putting themselves, not necessarily putting yourself at risk, though he does that, but like spending your life, if you say this is what you are, what you're all about, about making the lives of people better, then you should do it. (laughs) And a lot of them just rely too much on the quote-unquote trickle-down effect rather than getting out there, getting your hands dirty with the grassroots, getting in there in the dirt and actually planting the seeds yourself, which is kind of more of the Thoros approach. And to me, I have a little more respect for that, I guess. Not that I don't have respect for the Melisandre approach. I do. Being leaders causes great change. It absolutely does, whether you like it or not, whether you like that the world works that way or not, it does. So much that happens in politics is rooted in relationships and personal things that we don't always see. Who's the Melisandre that I have to blame for the political <laughs> landscape? Yeah. Who's the woman behind every, <laughs> every great man or whatever? <laughs> so the actual resurrection. So this is when Thoros's life flipped upside down. Sure, it flipped upside down because of the political situation. The Robert losing his best friend, losing, having all these other things happen, or one of his best friends having all... That's a big, huge deal in his life. Like Everything changed. All of a sudden, he went from sitting around drinking to being an outlaw in just a few days. But then, on top of that, this happens. That first time, his lordship had a hole right through him and blood in his mouth. I knew there was no hope. So when his poor, torn chest stopped moving, I gave him the good God's own kiss to send him on his way. I filled my mouth with fire and breathed the flames inside him 
down his throat to lungs and heart and soul. The last kiss, it is called. And many a time I saw the old priests bestow it on the Lord's servants as they died. I had given it a time or two myself, as all priests must, but never before had I felt a dead man shudder as the fire filled him, nor seen his eyes come open. It was not me who raised him, my lady. It was the Lord. Relor is not done with him yet. Life is warmth, and warmth is fire, and fire is God's and God's alone. This was a man that had the capacity for deep faith, but it was dormant because he just didn't see enough in the world to justify it, to back it up, to make it seem real. He never truly embraced it. He says himself he wasn't that good of a priest early on. And this is why he wasn't zealous. He didn't believe as much. His faith wasn't as intense or strong as most of the people around him in the priesthood. And then it got less and less as he spent more time. Like we said, he's not around other red priests. He's just in Westeros. He's not even around other Mirish people. He's around Robert. He's around Ares. He's around whoever else. He's around people who worship the seven and occasionally worshipers of the old gods. And so this just, his faith probably decreased even more. And then just boom, bam, holy crap, resurrection. (laughs) Like, wow. Talk about flipping the world on his head. Again, he just found himself in the civil war with his friend dead. Completely the world flipped around and now his faith is flipped too. There's like very few characters in the entire story we can say had such a huge change of perspective in such a short period of time and lived to tell about it and kept going, right? That's, there's just few people that had this much happen so quickly all at once. Another clue here, by the way, Shay, that he had performed that ceremony on people before himself. Yeah, yeah. He didn't come back alive. So he probably would have tried to do that with Robert. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yes, you're right. He might have. You're right. And I, 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 Christina Kay brings up that line, filled my mouth with fire. It's so odd. What is like, what does that mean? Which is, uh, you know, true. Like, what does, like, is there an actual fire? Like, I don't doubt it. I'm like, I picture it kind of like, you know, like if you can make yourself burp. (laughs) Like, there's like a a sensation that can be hard to describe to someone how you like fill your lungs with air and then like fill your mouth. Like, maybe there is like a real thing that a sense that he taps in where like Hmm. he feels that. But I don't, and, and someone else in the chat where Guilty Undertaker said, Maybe it helps to take a mouthful of hard liquor first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, breathe by a little uh, fireball. But yeah, I kind of, I, I picture <laughs> it's something that's fireball. like, it's hard for them to put into words, but he knows it when he does it. Yeah. He fills his mouth with fire. Like he, it's a sensation that he does, he is doing a thing. And Nina writes it, and it occurs at a moment of empathy on the part of Thoros. The miracle happens not because he's trying to make a miracle. He's not like, let's aim for a miracle. He's just doing the last nice thing he can for his friend, for his dying friend or his just deceased friend. It's he's, He wants him to go to Relor Heaven or what have you, or to be in a better place. It is empathy. It is kindness. This is the heart and soul of what priests, quote unquote, should be. And priestesses too. Uh, that's, that was an agender <laughs> phrase yeah. there. But, the ma- but it worked. I mean, yeah, like he could not, he didn't see it coming. He had no idea it was coming. He had, didn't have hope of that happening. It was completely off the table. It wasn't like, well, let's take our chance here. Like completely, completely unexpected. And as Nina writes, Thoros's small act of sympathy results in a wondrous resurrection. Wondrous indeed. It's hard to know exactly what went on in Thoros's mind through all that. He expresses some of it. We've got several quotes. I actually, in this throughout this episode, I have most of everything Thoros has ever said. Not everything. He, he talks a lot. There's a lot of scenes with him, especially in A Storm of Swords, but also quite a bit in The Feast for Crows. 
But most of the meaningful things he says we have in this episode, there's not so many that we can't get most of them. So one of the best quotes we can get from him that applies to this is right here in response to being told, yeah, he's, you know, you were not such a great priest. Yet I am not the false priest you knew. The Lord of Light has woken in my heart. Many powers long asleep are waking, and there are forces moving in the land. I have seen them in my flames. Yeah, his and his flame reading is one of the things that's stronger now. His ability to see things there is, is grown. Greenbeard claims Thoros is going to find Jamie in the flames when he hears that Jamie's escaped from River Run. Like, well, Thoros will find him, you know, through flame reading. Like, oh. Then there's just more and more resurrections. He resurrects Beric six times and he's uncomfortable with it. They're both uncomfortable with it. Beric asks him about it. He's like, he doesn't, he doesn't want to name the number. Beric insists. He's like six. And then later, when Thoros is expressing his amazement at the miraculousness of it all and, and, and talking about how great flame is, Beric jumps in kind of angrily. He's like, fire consumes everything, everything. And Thoros is like, What's the matter, my friend? He calls him, I think he calls him my sweet friend. And Beric just walks away abruptly. The idea that in the afterlife, it's just nothing. There's nothing at all. Or at least if you go through the flames for that, there's nothing. This is a man who's died six times and, and, doesn't, and remembers less every time he comes back. Certainly doesn't remember what it's like to be dead. He says, are you my mother, Thoros, at one point? It's, it's heartrending. It's almost as bad as egg I dreamt I was young, which is... Yeah. Let's not dwell on that. <laughs> By the way, I can't help but notice the dancing around the seven there again. He's six times, hasn't got to the seventh yet, and asked if he's his mother yeah. like, of the seven. And there isn't you know? a seventh. There isn't a seventh, right? Because the, what, what, the, he passes the flame it, to, to Stoneheart before there could have been one. She's the seventh. Yeah. The stranger. <laughs> oh, I was going to say the mother, but a stranger. Yeah. She's a little of both, I suppose. But it's interesting that how some of the other brothers don't necessarily fully perceive what's happening. It's like, instead of embracing the awakening of old powers and saying, well, Thoros is really magical and powerful, people like Lem just say, no, he's the greatest healer. He sees it as healing. Barracks one time responds to that by just kind of staring at Lem like, ah, I don't, I can't explain it to him. I just, I'm just going to let him be ignorant. I'm not going to say anything. Just let, just go on, just go ahead and believe that. Yeah, no greater healer. He, he pauses and just says, yeah, no greater healer. Sure. <laughs> he doesn't say sure, but that's kind of in my mind that was implied. Let him hold on to his belief. If it makes him feel better, he can think that way. You know, don't disabuse him of that. But Thoros, Thoros accuses Beric of being uncautious. He's like, you just keep getting yourself killed. And Thoros, no, I mean, this is Thoros, a guy who charges through the breach, who leads <laughs> from the front. He's like, no, you are being too, <laughs> you're being too uncautious. This isn't like a person who's like nervous at seeing people put themselves in danger in general. No, this is a guy who's, quite comfortable bleeding from the front and being brave and fearless. And he's telling this guy, you're being too brave and fearless. Yeah. That's really something. In terms of like their war effort, they're constantly raiding supply lines, attacking Lannister foragers. His legend starts to grow in other circles. It's sometimes exaggerated because you know, game of telephone, you know, Thoros is here and there and everywhere. And, but it's important that it's not Beric. It's Beric and Thoros. Whenever they get mentioned, it's Beric and Thoros. It's the, the Red Priest and the Lightning Lord. Even though Beric is technically in charge, Thoros takes a subordinate role to him. He calls him my lord, recognizes his rank. They're pretty much the co-leaders of the group. They're recognized that way. So 
both of their stories grow, especially Barracks, because everybody's like, this guy can't be killed. <laughs> but Thoros <laughs> is the one who keeps bringing him back, it, even though he credits the Lord of Light. Well, none of the other people could do that. None of the other members of the Brotherhood could have the Lord of Light do that for them. They're not going to respond to their prayers, only Thoros' prayers. There's a little bit of downplaying the resurrection, too. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, a couple of times it's mentioning, oh, hey, Barak was nearly dead. But not like he was killed and I brought him back. Yeah. Like it, he slowly reveals it to Arya. You know? Yeah, he's uncomfortable with it too a little bit. I For think. example. Yeah. Here's another example or a relevant side bit here. When Jamie and Brienne and Cleos are trying to sneak from River onto King's Landing after Catelyn sets Jamie free, right? They encounter an inn where the owners try to steer them into a brotherhood without banners ambush, right? You, you remember this. They warn them off other routes to try to get them to take the route they want. They're like, oh, you don't want to go on that route. You don't want to go that way because the blah, blah, blah. And one of them is talking about Thoros and Barak. He says, he mentions how deadly Lord Barak is. And Jamie responds, Does Thoros of Mir still ride with him? I, the Red Wizard, I've heard tell he has strange powers. Well, he had the power to match Robert Baratheon drink for drink, and there were few enough who could say that. <laughs> Jamie had once heard Thoros tell the king that he became a red priest because the robes hid the wine stains so well. Robert had laughed so hard, he'd spit ale all over Cersei's silken mantle. Does silken mantle hide ale stains? <laughs> red Lannister <laughs> dress, maybe. Can you imagine Cersei? She would have just like... Ice cold, stocked out like you, and rightfully so. That's a terrible (laughs) thing to do. (laughs) So rude. (laughs) This is a guy who works for Thoros saying, oh, the Red Priest, you don't want to encounter him. He has strange powers. So he's talking him up to discourage Jamie and Brienne and Cleos from going that route. Meanwhile, Thoros is probably or at least possibly the one waiting to ambush them, (laughs) you know, at least or some people that he works with. So that's funny. And remember, some outlaws kill Cleos and shoot arrows at Jamie and Brienne. That might have even been those same people, or not those same people, but a different group of Brotherhood Without Banners that were on the hunt there. They, of course, do want to capture Jamie and do much later, much later, which is, you know, where things are, uh, where the books are now. But also they go around feeding the common people, winning their trust. But it's a little like communism with the, the pluses and minuses, where they're also taking from people to give to others. And that, not everyone likes that, of course. Here's another quote to describe that scenario from Arya. Arya's listening here. She heard one wizened old woman complain to another when they had bedded down for the night. We never did no treason. The others come in and took what they wanted, same as this bunch. Lord Beric did us no hurt, though, her friend whispered. And that red priest with him, he paid for all they took. Paid? He took two of my chickens and gave me a bit of paper with a mark on it. Can I eat a bit of raggy old paper, I ask you? Will it give me eggs? She looked about to see that no guards were near and spat three times. I'm not going to make the spitting sound for your benefit. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There's for the Tullys and there's for the Lannisters and there's for the Starks. Thanks for the great old lady. (laughs) That was cool. I appreciate that. (laughs) Do I sound old? (laughs) <laughs> Say something, just a little something here that's just going to pique some people's interest. Okay. There's, a, I, I want you to think about this scene, Aziz, and think about a certain Winds of Winter character that we've heard about, that Aziz and I have heard about that is not a character we can talk about. But there's a little, can you think about that? 
huh. about pieces of paper and their value. Oh, yeah, and their value. Oh, good Anyway, it's just that. Just a little tidbit for y'all. One we know day, a little, we'll tell you what this inside what, what this was, was about. We'll tell you what this was about. That but I catch. think <laughs> there's a certain character that we haven't met yet who's going to be like, there's some value to paper. Someone who knows what the value of paper is. That yeah. paper, it, paper might indeed get you some eggs, get you some eggs or some chickens. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you give it to the right person. But yeah, seriously, given the supposedly good guys are stealing food from people who are already poor, that's not a great look. But they're not keeping it for themselves entirely. Like they're giving it to other poor people. And yeah, but they do get worse and worse in this regard. They do start just looking more like brigands and less like helpers. Under Barrack, they seem to do their best. Note how this one describes both aspects of this, the giving and the taking. Here's another little conversation. They were here not a fortnight past, them and a dozen more driving sheep. I could scarcely believe my eyes. Thoros gave me three as thanks. You've eaten one tonight. Thoros herding sheep? Anguai laughed out loud. I grant you it was an odd sight, but Thoros claimed that as a priest, he knew how to tend a flock. I and shear them too, chuckled in the Minkoko. Yeah, so shearing them too was like the ones he took the chickens from and gave paper. <laughs> that's the tending a flock, but shear them. Yeah, so that, that's a really clever way to summarize the situation there in this conversation that Arya overhears. So I like that a lot too. More excellent writing from George. We never get sick of that. He never stops hitting us over the head with his excellence. We don't even always realize how excellent it is when we, when we discover it. Sometimes it takes us the 20th time to realize <laughs> some of the levels. The Ghost of High Heart. Okay, this is super interesting here. Arya goes there twice with the Brotherhood. But clearly they've been there before. They know where she is. So they have experienced her and talked to her before Arya sees this. So Thoros has been going there for a while. He realized his powers don't work at her grove. Or maybe he knew that already, either one way or the other. It's just more magic verification than magic and the gods are real. And to him, it justifies or verifies powers outside his own religion, which I think is pretty important. He's seeing proof of other supernatural powers that have nothing to do with R'hllor. He even says that at one point. He's like, yeah, like the, the werewolves whisper into her sleep at night. I don't know what... He doesn't, he doesn't understand it, but he it's clearly separate from R'hllor. And of course, he's gotten plenty of proof by this point. He's resurrected Barak plenty of times. His flame breedings are working better than they either, ever have. He may have heard stories from elsewhere or heard rumors. They may not even be true, but we know there are facts of greater magic happening around the world. I, I want to say apparently separate from R'hllor, not mm. clearly separate okay. from yeah. R'hllor. Yeah, yeah, we don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah, he, he would perceive it that way. For example, the Ghost of High Heart has more powerful prophetic powers than Thoros, but he does have them. And that's evidence of this is, well, they keep going to her. If he was able to see all the things they needed to see, they would, why would they keep talking to her? Why would they keep going to her for information? Why would they travel all that way to a place that's not super defensible either? It's, it's a hill kind of standing alone by itself. It's, it looks almost dangerous to be there, except that it's a bit remote. But it's similar in a sense. Picture Thoros like trying to perceive a certain person, looking into the flame and looking for Beric or looking for Jamie or looking for someone. Melisandre, we've seen this firsthand when she's trying to find Stannis and the Lord of Light only shows her snow, capital S, right? That <laughs> We come back to that peculiar and interesting and intriguing moment. Got to figure the same things with Thoros, except that he's less confident in what he sees. He doesn't have her zealotry. He doesn't have her like confidence in what he's seeing. He's more likely to downplay it or to take it with a grain of salt or to blame himself for misinterpreting. Whereas Melisandre... 
She sees it, she believes it. <laughs> you know, she admits she's seen things wrong, but usually that's an after the fact thing. So he he does later see the siege of River Run. He tries to see it, or he rather he tries to see River Run and sees the siege. He tries to see it while he's near the Ghost of High Heart, and indeed it doesn't work, which he expected. He's like, yeah, it's probably not going to work here. And she emphasizes that. Yeah, look into your fires, pink priest. You'll see, but not here. It won't work here. So here's the quote. What he does see when he finally gets a view. The Lord granted me a view of River Run, an island in a sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping lions with long crimson claws, and how they roared. Sea of Lannisters, my lady. River Run will soon come under attack. And it does. It does. It does come under attack. The siege happens. Similar enough language, too. The, the way it's written. A sea of Lannisters, island in the sea of fire. Similar verbiage, similar style to how the Ghost of High Heart sees things. You know, a serpent with purple fangs and in her hair, whatever. The, I don't have them written out here for me to quote, but similar language. And he maybe isn't as good as Mel or Macoro. I'm not sure. Nina points out, it's hard to say because we don't get enough time with him, less of him giving visions. I mean, we've had more visions from Makoro than Thoros, even though we've seen a lot less of Makoro. It's implied that Thoros has had visions that have worked out for the Brotherhood, that they've used it to find each other. Like when Beric and Thoros are separate, that's happened. They show faith in his ability to do that, even if it doesn't work always. So it's implied it's worked, but again, that's, it's to tell us just how well it works, you know? This reminded me of vision of uh, Winterfell being. Oh yeah, totally. The yeah, the sea the rising over the walls. Shores of Winterfell. Yeah, <laughs> the shores of Winterfell. <laughs> High tide at Winterfell. <laughs> I'm guessing Thoros is not great with faces, with looking at faces and recognizing people. Because Brienne, when Brienne sees Gendry, she's like Renly, and then she's like, "Wait, okay, you just look like." And and Ned, when he sees Gendry, is like, "That looks like Robert." Best friends with Robert, but. No, there's no hint that Thoros recognizes Gendry as someone who looks like Robert. He's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> you're, you, you're a blacksmith kid. Or are you? Or are you? That's true. Is there any chance that Thoros recognizes or knows and just has not found it to be a thing he needs to bring up or call him out for? Is there that, is I, a chance. I'm just question. Yes, just, you there know. is a chance. There is a chance. Like, yeah. He might have just known intimately because Robert had talked to him about all these bastards yet. He might have just actually known about Gendry. And so they, they might have had Robert private conversations. Like Gendry might know that Thoros... No, I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Just a thought. Interesting point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If we're not in his POV, in his head, for all we know, he's like, that's Robert's boy, but he's not about to say it. Uh, evidence for this potential comes from the fact that of all the shops Thoros goes to buy his swords at, it just happens to be the one where Gendry works. Yeah, yeah, mm, you know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. He keeps tabs on him. Yeah, yeah. you know, Varus was keeping tabs on him, but I don't know, I mean, Thoros... Maybe. And how much effort did Thoros put into getting Gendry to join them? You know, like... Mm -hmm. uh, Mm. Or, or at least not stopping other people. Like, he, he, he probably on some level, he could be looking out for him. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's a good question. We have Robert's Rebellion, but we also have Robert's Resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> Next, let's talk I about... I resemble that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm rebelling against that remark. <laughs> let's talk about the Battle at the Sceptre. This is one of the few examples of, that we actually get to see. Most of, a lot of what we see from Thoros is actually just told to us. Like, of course, the Greyjoy... Rebellion and a lot of their other stuff. It's raiding supply lines. We don't actually see that. But we actually see through Arya's point of view when they track down and kill a group of the bloody mummers, the brave companions. This is back when they really were about justice and doing good for the people around because these people, the bloody mummers, were just doing horrible things to the civilians all around. 
the Riverlands. And they'd already suffered from Gregor and Emery Lorch and, well, Hode's been a part of it all along. So he's they're hunting these criminals down because no one else will. And Arya's watching and it starts off with a few arrows and a little bit of an ambush. And then the warriors come charging out of the sept that they had sacked. They were setting up at having some fun with priests torturing them and drinking their wine and eating their food. And the battle breaks out, and here's what Arya sees. Thoros and Lord Beric were everywhere, their swords swirling fire. The Red Priest hacked at a hide shield until it flew to pieces, while his horse kicked the man in the face. That'll do it. <laughs> and his battle cry starts it. It's Thoros' battle cry that gets them going again. He's a loud guy. That's very useful, as we've said. He's fighting with a flaming sword. He definitely doesn't have wildfire anymore at this point. There's no way out in the woods he's got us. He's he doesn't even have a razor. He doesn't even have enough food. Where's he care? Where's he getting wildfire from? There's no chance he has wildfire anymore. So this is evidence that he can do the fire sword thing. Do you he have can a light his sword though. on fire? Hmm? Do you think it was the horse of Mir? The horse of Mir and his horse of Mir. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After the battle, he goes to a brothel for a. <laughs> Horos <laughs> of Mir. <laughs> He's got that magic now. He can set his sword on fire. So that, then they hang the survivors and give them a trial. And this is one of those times where it's like, yeah, the trial's not going to go well for them because they're members of the Bloody Mummers. Thoros implores the Lord of Light to roast their souls until the end of time. So he, he, really, he doesn't have much sympathy for these guys. He even has sympathy for Sandor a little bit, a little bit. Who, and he hates the Lannisters and hates Gregor and sees them as you know so violent and evil. But even he, his priest side is like, got to see the good in him or at least got to see where the source of all his, his hatred and anger comes from. But there's not, not much hope for these guys, not much hope for the bloody mummers. Interestingly, one of, the, one of those who gets hanged is a mirish crossbowman and he's trying to speak in broken English, broken common, like, I soldier, I Thoros of Mir could have spoken to him in his native dialect and just chose not to. <laughs> He's like, nah, oh, we're hanging you. I'm not giving you the time of day here. Sandor at that trial reminds me a little bit of Jamie Lannister. Like, mm. he doesn't feel the need to justify himself to these people. Oh, like, yeah. you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. I don't need to you can kill me if you want, but I'm not going to explain myself to you. Yeah, you know? yeah. Which is our next topic here. We got Sandor getting captured. And remember, the way they find Sandor is dogs sniff him out. And here we see Thoros' sense of humor, quote. Betrayed by his own kind, Thoros turned to the prisoner and yanked his hood off. Welcome to our humble hall, dog. It is not so grand as Robert's throne room, but company is better. Sandor recognizes immediately, and that's when they have the conversation of, about, yeah, I beat you, I overthrew you three times with my fire swords. <laughs> and then... Things start to get heated. Sandor calls them out, insults them a little bit, and he says this next line. Do you deny that House Clegane was built upon dead children? I saw them lay Prince Aegon and Prince Rhaenys before the Iron Throne. By rights, your arms should bear two bloody infants in place of those ugly dogs. Yeah, yikes. <laughs> quite, a, quite a line that, there. That, that sense of justice coming out, you know, yeah. but... And Thoros doesn't fully trust him. He's like, before he hands him his sword for the trial by combat, make sure, okay, Angai's got an arrow pointed at you. Two other guys have their arrows pointed at you. Okay, now he hands him his sword. And Beric lights his sword for this one. Thor Beric lights his own sword with his, draws it across his hand. That's the one time we actually see the mechanics behind that. So this is where I want to like wrap up, not the whole episode, we've got a little more to go, but just the power stuff. What other powers does he have? 
We've seen the resurrection, so obviously he can do that, although as we've discussed, there's some limitations to it, or maybe he just doesn't want to do it to everyone. We don't know exactly. Flame reading, clearly he can do that, and his power has grown in that regard, but it's also limited. Fire swords, he can do that, although it's not like he's lighting everyone's swords on fire. It's just him and Beric doing his own. Now Beric's gone, so maybe it's just him. Does he have cold resistance like Melisandre? Melisandre in the north has no trouble being in the snow and ice. Doesn't bother her a whit. Makoro sits in the sea for like two weeks, just floating there. Doesn't seem to need to eat. So we talked about the food thing before. Does he get pruny? Yeah. <laughs> does, mm-hmm. does he have resistance to the elements? Is that part of where he's developed? Maybe Melisandre has that because she's way older than she seems and that's affected her and she's just Yeah, I mean, with Melisandre, changed. I also have the question, like, she's resistant to the cold, but, like, have we seen, would she also just flourish in Dorne? Yeah. Um, like, would she, get, would she have to deal would with, like, like better, would, yeah. would she get sunburned if she was out in the desert and a hot, you know, and, and the sun beating down her? I don't think so. I, I don't think she would get sunburned. So I think it's an element thing, not just resistance to the cold, I guess, is my yeah, point. that's a good point. It's people would be elements. jealous of her having pale skin and never getting sunburned. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think she would. Or I wonder if maybe it's not a natural permanent automatic thing. Maybe she's doing something to give herself imperviousness to the cold. She's taking oh, some certain potion or something yeah, like that. Maybe okay. she knew she would have to be prepared certain for prayers the or, whatever. or whatever, which she calls yeah, this magic, yeah. but she calls them prayers. Yeah. Yeah. There's like really, it's really interesting, like looking at her chapter and thinking, does Thoros do this kind of thing where he's, she's just in pain and then gazing into the flame and black blood dripping from her? Like, well, he and have maybe the right he could, that, but, still. but he didn't commit himself to it. He didn't have ambition like she does. He didn't study those certain spells. Maybe that's the kind of thing that you get to after you've been doing it for 80 years. Like you have to like really practice. You got to be super into it. And like he's just only in his 40s. So he couldn't be to that stage yet. Yeah, there might be. a. And also even into his 40s, he hasn't spent it all at a temple, right? He went to another continent and kind of abandoned his faith. And but if he had stayed at the temple for 20 more years, maybe he would have learned some of this stuff in Alessandro. Yeah. And Hmm. Makoro. Yeah, or yeah, 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 absolutely. Exactly. Totally right. Or maybe he could go back there now and they would have new things to teach him because oh, yeah, he's old yeah. enough. He's the master level or what have you. Yeah. I mean, we hear about these things in the real world for other disciplines. Like there are things that you, you've been doing it for 30 years and you're still learning. You're still getting, and, and actively getting better at it. It's not like you're still trying, but like the people who've been doing it 30 years are better than people who've been doing it for 10 years, you know, even though they're much older, like archery or certain music instruments or just lots of crafts, lots, just a bajillion examples of that. So it could fit with magic List too. them all, disease. <laughs> a lot of times it's required. You know, sure. the doctors typically have uh, refreshers, if you will, okay, like yeah. that to keep up to date on new information. Yeah, lawyer, a lot of you know, especially licensed professionals usually have some upkeep. Stoneheart, things get pretty severe and dark here. Not just for the general topic, but for Thoros personally. Let's start with a quote describing the first rising of Lady Stoneheart. The phrase slashed her throat from ear to ear. When we found her by the river, she was three days dead. Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it. So Lord Beric put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And she rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose. Super weird, huh? Like this talking about before, like how do you do the kiss of life? Well, he just naturally it. knew, yeah. like he had received it enough times, he knew how to give it. I guess he knew how to fill his mouth with fire. Yeah, and pass that on. It's super interesting and, and curious. And 
And I guess maybe it's because she had been Beric. She had his flame or because she's a lady and they're all just Westerosi and they follow the highest ranking person around. Either way, despite being dead, like Beric was, she outranked them and they followed her. This is how these things work. Authority, the way authority works in Westeros. I'm like picturing like some people in the Brotherhood, like looking at each other, like, are we just are we really following? Gonna... Well, she can't speak. She I know, speak. she barely can, can barely like, understand There's actually her. a really good joke in Our Flag Means Death where someone like suggests the mute character to be the like new captain and someone goes, Jim doesn't, they, they don't speak. I Call me like if, like if I'm wrong, but I think a, a good quality in a leader is if they can speak. <laughs> yeah, communication is pretty important. Like if they can tell you some other way how to do your job, that would be fine. But like, yeah. It's the opposite of having a big battlefield voice is having no voice at all. It makes it difficult. <laughs> so, but that's important to bring up that, that they followed her because not everyone followed her. Some of them just left. I mean, not right away, but some of them just, just frittered off and were like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not about this anymore. Yeah, I wouldn't be about that anymore. But Thoros stayed. So why? I really want to know why he stayed. Is he just seeing it through? Is it because he cares? He's, he's part of this. He pledged to be part of this group. He can't leave the Brotherhood, even though they've fallen so far. I don't know. I don't know why he, he could go elsewhere and do good, but he just, he's committed, you know? I mean, there is something to be said for a true mystical power. Whether you should or not, it makes sense to believe that they're worthy. If someone has a true mystical power, that yeah. maybe I should pay attention to them, you know? I mean, in the real world, people follow someone just because they have big biceps or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is a better reason. Yeah, I mean, and he sees the hand of R'hllor here, so he wouldn't leave the presence of the hand of what's of R'hllor guiding things, I guess. If he devoutly believes that R'hllor is steering events here, then why would he go somewhere else? He would stay where R'hllor's hand is, where R'hllor's flame is burning, right? So in that sense, you can see it from a religious person's perspective. He's like, well, I'm miserable here, but this is where God wants me to be, so I'm doing it. Now, Beric probably wouldn't have hanged Podrick. I don't think, because he's young. But Stoneheart... Let's have a quote. A boy, she said again, have pity. My lady, Thoreau said, I do not doubt the kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, as they do of milk and honey. And justice? Can that be found in caves? Justice, Thoreau smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were kingsmen, knights, and heroes. But some knights are dark and full of terror. Knights with a K, by the way. Yeah, pun, Thoros pun. <laughs> some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Are you saying you are monsters? I am saying we are human. You are not the only one with wounds, Lady Brienne. Some of my brothers were good men when this began. Some were less good, shall we say, though there are those who say it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends. Suppose it could be the same for women. So Beric seems to have become his best friend. So he lost him and Robert before. So those are two of his many wounds of people he lost, not to mention the 20 men he brought. Most of them are probably dead. Some of his lack of pity here is his hate of the Lannisters, though. Like this isn't all just, yeah, this is how it is now. But this is Podrick and Brienne decked out in Lannister gear and Sir Hyle Hunt, a bannerman of House Tarly, who is allied with the Lannisters. 
the specific part of the quote that's really significant to me is when he says, it does not matter how a man begins, but only how he ends, right? He's projecting a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's he? projecting. There's a, lot, there's a lot of levels there because like, I think about one Catelyn, like, who was a good character, but how's her end? Is that more important than all the good she did over time? That's why he says I think about Thoros himself. Women, yeah. And I think, of course, of Brienne, who is one of the most good characters and who could be sullied by the end of the books in a certain way. And it's just, it's just a really good line. That, those, that one sentence is very good to me. Yeah, this is such an amazing conversation between the two because he's also saying, look, even Brienne, who's great and understands the suffering and like, like has pity and empathy, she doesn't get how bad it can be. Even she ha- sees some of these things through a bit of a lens of privilege, even though she's excluded from so much, even though she's not allowed to be a knight, even though she's a woman in a man's world, she still comes from a wealthy family. She still has money and means. Whereas Thoris is like, the way he describes justice, she acts like justice is a, should always happen no matter what. And Thoris is like, look, at a certain point, just even justice is a luxury when you have so little. Do you think cavemen back in the day had the had justice for all the ills? And like we don't have justice now. Plenty of things. People get away with stuff all the time. Justice is done, but it's also not done sometimes. So how's it gonna be found in caves, right? Like, how is it gonna be people who are barely eating, barely surviving, barely all their friends have been killed? They're constantly worried about whether they survive another day, they have very little hope for anything in the future right now. Like they have very little optimism for their life ever being good again. Even someone who wants justice, like it doesn't matter if you have justice if you starve to death. Yeah. The nature of justice or morality might shift when there are less resources. Like it, it makes sense. Some heroic martyrs might starve to death rather than steal food. But it makes sense to me to steal food, not starve to death, and then pay the food back later. That's a better sort of justice, you know. And that's, but, that fits with what Thoros said about it matters how you end, not how you begin. Like you began with stealing yeah. food, but you end by giving it back and, and repaying it tenfold or helping other people who need it. I think most people would be okay with that, if, if not more than okay with it. Like praise that, given the circumstances. So you really wonder what he thinks of Stoneheart. Like he's staying with this person that he thinks has ended maybe ending darkly or is leading them down a darker path, taking them away from things like justice towards things like revenge. What's his view of this? It's all part of God's plan. Is that his attitude or does he have hope for the future? Does he have optimism? I think, so. do you think maybe I they think can turn that. around? I really do. I think it's that he thinks it was Rulor's will. Yeah. So he has to follow along with, with her as a leader. He also might have not not fully realized or processed what's going on. Like he might have started with this assumption that she's a new leader, she'll lead us to justice, just like Beric. And he's like, ah, oh, that doesn't seem just. That doesn't seem right. Maybe yeah. I don't know. Maybe he's about to leave next week. You know? Yeah, he understand. Like maybe he understands some of what she wants. Maybe he feels like if she finds Arya or kills enough Lannisters and Freys that she'll start to do other mm-hmm. things. She'll move on to nobler tasks. Or maybe maybe he sees it as. Well, we had Barrack for a leader for a while. That flame passed to another dead person. It'll eventually pass to someone else. It won't be Stoneheart. Yeah. It'll be somebody mm-hmm. else. And maybe this is another parallel George is drawing to like Stannis and Melisandre. Like mm. how much will Thoros put up with from Lady Stoneheart? How much will Stannis put up with from Melisandre? Or how much will like, Melisandre these realize that she's the wrong doing. person? Yeah. 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 There yeah. you go. That's a good call too. Yeah. yeah. That is a really good. I like your idea too, though, because it sort of reverses it. Like the, the Red Priest is the one that's realize they've done the wrong, they're with the wrong person rather than the the king with the red priest or queen with the red or lady Stoneheart. (laughs) 
Here's another quote from him about this scenario here. Lightning comes and goes, and then is seen no more. So too with men. Lord Barrick's fire has gone out of this world, I fear. A grimmer shadow leads us in his place. It's kind of neat that Dondarrion is the lightning lord when we have the lord of light. And then we have <laughs> Lord yeah. Barrick's fire has gone out, and mm-hmm. etc. So he thought, Thoris thought that was fitting. Lightning comes and goes and is seen no more. A grimmer shadow leads us in his place. So she obviously, obviously that's pretty accurate. She's a pretty grim shadow. And the Brotherhood Without Banners is surely given that they only operate in the Riverlands and maybe the northern parts of the Reach and maybe a little bit into the Crownlands. Mostly their stomping grounds is the Riverlands. They have to be aware of the giant wolf pack roaming around, led by a dire wolf. Like everyone seems to have heard about it that's in the area. Surely they know a thing or two about it. Surely they've encountered it. Maybe not directly, but you wonder what the deal with that is and what he thinks of that. Especially because... Stoneheart's looking for Arya. Thoros had Arya. They had Arya for a while until she got away. So they've talked about that. Thoros knows that she wants her daughter back. And who knows what conversations have happened behind the scenes on that. Conversations would be very difficult with Lady Stoneheart, (laughs) with her barely (laughs) able to talk and all. Ah, picture that. Just her sitting there with her cowl and her barely audible voice, just like scratching out questions for him about Arya and him being like, yeah, we... We she, had her. We were trying to take her to you. you know, she <laughs> we was were. saying boo-earns. I was saying boo-earns. <laughs> but of course, they're still, they're still raiding and, and romping around. And we're jumping back a little for this quote, just to remind ourselves of what he had looked like and what he looks like now. This is from Arya's point of view. She had seen him before and is just surprised at what he looks like after being in the wilderness for so long. He pointed toward the fire where Tom Sevenstring stood talking to a tall, thin man with oddments of old armor buckled on over his ratty pink robes. That can't be Thoros of Mir. Arya remembered the red priest as fat, with a smooth face and a shiny bald head. This man had a droopy face and a full head of shaggy gray hair. It would have been funny to see older Thoros or prior Thoros standing next to Varus. They would have been less like, Mini me, uh-huh. like no hair at all. Yeah. Robes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Purple robes and red robes. <laughs> one, the shorter one, one, the really tall one. They each get cats. Yeah, they each get cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, a sphinx cat, a hairless evil cat. Look, yeah. Yeah. So he goes from fat to a tall, thin man. So he's thin now. He's not just lost weight, but he's thin. So very, very different. It goes from not from no hair at all to lots of hair. So Brienne seeing a similar thing when she sees him, but she didn't really have a prior version of him to compare. She'd only heard about him. I don't know that she had seen him much or or even ever. So this is all that stacks up pretty interestingly. And we know that after Arya got away and was snatched by Sandor, they tracked them as far as the ferry, the ferry that Sandor ripped off, and then they were unable to pursue them any farther, which kind of worked out for them because going to River Run wouldn't have been great. Going to the Twins would have been really bad because that's where the Red Wedding was. Ari and Sandor barely got away going there. So Brave Compan- or the Brotherhood of the Banners wouldn't want to go show up there <laughs> where, the, where all that was going down. I just want to point out, this is not re- directly related to Thoros, but when Jamie had Brienne on his side, like sneaking through the woods, they evaded capture for a time until he attacked her and they got caught because they were dueling in the woods and everybody noticed that people who are out there. But when the Brotherhood Without Banners had Brienne on their side, 
they captured Jamie <laughs> using her <laughs> to help. So yeah, Jamie should just pay attention to that. Let's talk about what's next. We saw the inn that the Brave Companion showed up, that Brienne had her no chance, no choice moment. The Brotherhood had already well infiltrated that. That was one of their bases of operations. So that was part of why they were all over that when Brienne was wounded. They were able to easily capture her and take her away. Here's what Thoros thinks about what's next, direct from his mouth. We were king's men when we began, man told her. But king's men must have a king, and we have none. We were brothers too, but now our brotherhood is broken. I do not know who we are, if truth be told, nor where we might be going. I only know the road is dark. The fires have not shown me what lies at its end. He has no idea where it's going. He knows he's on the road. He's on it. That's all he thinks is, I'm on the road, and the fires aren't bright enough to show me where it's going. But he knows he's going to stay on that path. He doesn't seem to have any indication he's going to leave the path. He doesn't give us any clue directly. <laughs> to this point, he's really been a survivor. He survived the pike. He survived the ambush where two-thirds of the men were killed. Even though he's one of the most visible people on the battlefield, no one could take him down. He survived countless skirmishes and battles amongst the Brotherhood Without Banners. One that we saw firsthand through Arya with, at the Battle of the Septry, the Burning Septry. There's been so many others. He continues to lead from the front, we can guess, and to arrange things. So this may... Not that his faith isn't as big as it's ever been, given the proof of magic and old powers awakening and him believing he's on the path for lore set for him. Well, surviving all these battles probably makes him feel like that too. He's like, well, the Lord of Light isn't done with Beric, or the Lord of Light isn't done with Lady Stoneheart. Well, the Lord of Light isn't done with you either, Thoros. Clearly, you keep surviving, keep getting out of these things where almost everybody else dies. So... Yeah, that's got to be boosting his faith a little bit. You guys brought up maybe, yeah, maybe he'll just leave Stoneheart. He seems to be pretty committed, but there are hints that he may be reaching his, the end of his road or the end of his wick, <laughs> to use a fire metaphor. He's an outlaw, but yeah, if things keep getting worse, does he really want to be that way? I mean, what if the Lannisters are overthrown? He has a shot to not be an outlaw anymore. He's an, out he's an outlaw to them. But if like, Someone from a different family sits the throne. He might be able to get a pardon, right? That, that could change things. What if Blackfish joins the Brotherhood? What if they he joins the mix and all of a sudden they have another really capable leader in there? That might encourage him to stay. I don't think he's quite as motivated by whether or not someone pardons him. Okay. It would get along the same line. It might be for the rest of his brother. He might care about that for them. Yeah, maybe it's maybe not like so they don't have to uh, live in caves anymore. Not any kind of consideration or factor, but I think he is more fundamentally worried about some combination of quote unquote the right thing mm. and what Relora wants. Okay, and and even think about like Blackfish showing up. If Blackfish showed up, would he want to join their ranks if they were just Led indiscriminately murdering people and stealing food? All of these other negative things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, like, it's, it's his niece, Catelyn, but she's undead. And yeah, so it's like, it's a really tough question. Yeah, like we don't have a good answer there. So throwing Thoros in the mix of that just makes it even more confusing. <laughs> and like, well, he might make her want to join or he might want to go with Blackfish instead if she's he's doing stuff or yeah, like he doesn't want his people to suffer. He doesn't want them to have, he wants them to have a way out. I think he wants their broken men that are stuck. And he himself says he doesn't see a road ahead. Well, maybe the road ahead will become visible. Maybe he finds out what's going on in the North and that gives him purpose. He's like, oh, a great battle in the North, you say. The, the spirits of, of darkness and cold. Mm, that, maybe that's where I should be. 
you know? I want to think that Brienne is going to give him purpose. That would be so. nice. And Brienne's still there. Maybe Brienne showing him something, like maybe the way the Brienne-Jamie situation resolves with Stone. Maybe, maybe that changes Thoros' mind. Here's a clue that he's... That things are even worse than even he thought. He just he tells Jamie or he tells Brienne all those things about how justice is gone, how it would be nice to have that. We don't even it's a luxury, etc. After that, this moment happens. After that, it's really important to get your order of effects here because he's he's talks about how far down they've gone, but apparently even he is shocked at how far they really have gone down this rabbit hole of of darkness. Quote Thoros sucked his breath in dismay. Is this true? A dead man's helm? Have we fallen that low? The big man scowled at him. It's good steel. There's nothing good about that helm, nor the men who wore it, said the red priest. Sandor Clegane was a man in torment and Rorge a beast in human skin. I'm not them. Then why show the world their face? Savage, snarling, twisted. Is that who you would be, Lim? The sight of it will make my foes afraid. The sight of it makes me afraid. Mm. And nothing makes Thoros afraid. We know that Thoros is fearless and Lem should know that. So it means a lot. Lem just kind of snarkily says, well, then don't look. You know, like it's not a very good answer. It's not really a resolution there. The point is, this is like what you're wearing the like the, the flag of the brave companions and Sandor Clegane. It's evil. Is that the next line? Lem says, don't look. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's so telling because it's not so much he's afraid like, oh, my God, you're a dangerous word that might kill me. It's more like, oh my God, look at what we've become. We've become as bad and as Lim the brave says, Don't look, yeah. just don't think about what we've become. I'm not looking, you know, like uh, it, it is an example of becoming what you're fighting against. Yeah. You know? It's also a Lannister helm. And he hates yeah, the Lannister. Yeah. So it's that <laughs> yeah. too. It's like a double whim. He's like, Jesus, like I'm on the side of, I'm part of this? Like, oof. Like he tries to not make it about himself. He tries, that's what, like, ideally, he's making it about the group. He's making it about, the, the lowborn people, the commoners, just justice, goals, ideals, not personal stuff. But this, this is personal for him, as well as violating their ideals and these things. So that's really bad. Like, he's like, Lem, and Lem's answer sucks. He's just like, yeah, who cares, you know? And Lem has a lot of hate in him, too. The Lannisters killed his wife and, and kid. So, like, and he's been living like this, too. And he doesn't have Thoros's faith background to, like, maybe boost him up. It'll give him a different outlook to give him a different attitude, something to hold on to. He, Thoros has some meaning still in his life, something to cling to, where guys like Lem, they're kind of all about revenge. They're kind of all about the same thing Stoneheart's about. They're, they're dark. So yeah, will he go north to Winterfell and or the Wall? You figure if he goes to one, he'll go to the other unless he dies at one. I mean, maybe not. Maybe the Wall won't be there by the time he gets to Winterfell. So that would be a possibility. And again, Melisandre. So many things could happen. That is just a series of great takes waiting to happen. If they were able to have conversations, I, I would... Man, that would be, be be amazing. I have no idea what George could have in store for us there, but wow. I'd buy that book and read it. Ooh, you know what? Me too. <laughs> More than once. Because it's such a different journey, but it might end them in the same place in terms of location where they could maybe rub off on each other a little bit. You know, Thoros is more devout than he's ever been. He knows what's at stake. <sighs> that, you know, like, like Shireen. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and, but he doesn't think it's correct to burn children. He might think it's okay to hang them if they're wearing Lannister garb or at least go along with it. But he doesn't just, as you say, Sean, but he might go along with it if he thinks it's for the greater good. Yeah, if, if burning a kid saves humanity, then he'd be like, well, that's awful, but better than humanity. I, Ending. I've burned kids for worse, or I've yeah. seen kids burned for worse. Yeah. And- 
it stinks to think of your hero as being open to that. But yeah, I mean, this is a gray story where, you know, ugh. will he meet Sandor again? That's an interesting one. The, the man he has so much, so many takes on, so much built up angst towards, but also somebody he has a little sympathy for, someone who ran off with Arya. And if he meets him again, he'd want to know what happened there. There's a lot of things that could happen in between that too. But it's a good question. Not one to answer. Just one to think about. Well, what happens if they talk again? Will they, will they crack jokes at each other? Will they fight beside each other? Will they fight each other? Probably not that one. <laughs> they probably won't fight each other. But hey, it is possible. Beyond the wall? Going beyond the wall would be interesting. I mean, Beric is gone. So that's a little, you know, there's different possibilities there. I don't know if you would go beyond the wall. That's a little less likely. But going to the wall or to Winterfell, those both seem fairly likely. And I don't know. You know, there was one line when I was uh, researching for this where I, I still can't quite tell how it applied, but, uh, but it was uh, with the ghost of High Heart and she was talking to Beric, but she called him the Lord of Corpses. And he's like, I asked you, don't call me that. Don't, don't do that. It made me wonder if, if, if Beric has any visions that Thoris has, if this yeah. breath of fire gives him any Ooh. supernatural knowledge or visions himself and if may or and even if not active or detailed if it just this feeling that the lord of court if that's the night king or whatever like no i'm not that yeah. i don't want to be that don't call me that you know mm. yeah yeah that is interesting like wh- how what is he seeing like what does he see when he closes his eyes like does he have dreams yeah super interesting and and because he if he does it does relate a lot to thoros because beric was his best friend and they talk about these things sometimes talks about losing his memories and talks about mm. what he sees and all these other things. They've they probably had some conversations off page about the meaning of it all and how it works and what's behind the veil. And Thoros would have questions. Beric would maybe need to talk it through. Maybe it's like a therapeutic kind of thing. And Thoros... Maybe just out of curiosity, yeah. too. Like, yeah. if I had a friend who got resurrected, I'd be asking all kinds of questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, can you... Get an erection? Yeah. Can you... <laughs> that's my first question. Yeah, that's can my you... first question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, folks. Uh, that is... The, we have reached the end of our notes. There's a few questions here. Last few <gasps> moments to get in a question or comment. We talked a lot about Thoros. I was really happy with this episode. I thought that our discussion was particularly good. It was very deep. It was, it was a good combination of world building, of theorizing, of magic, and character work. A lot of good character work. Thoros is a really good character. A great example of the level of depth that non-primary characters can have. Because he's not a primary character. But this much, you would think he's a primary character if this, if you didn't know A Song of Ice and Fire, given all this. You would think, like, well, that guy must be important. Well, he is important, but he's not primary. <laughs> he's not even, I'd say he's tertiary. He might he's not, not be secondary. secondary. I, I would argue he is, but, but it's close. I, I wouldn't argue strenuously. <laughs> if he is, then there are... 40 or 50 secondary characters. Or, or, or maybe even more than that. But yeah, you're right. You're right. Maybe, 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 maybe there should be a 2A and 2B. Yeah, there <laughs> you You could go. argue 2B. I would, I would be more, I would also say 2B probably, but, but he may rise to 2A. 2B or not 2 <laughs> And he may rise to a higher level. <laughs> If the rest of his arc is more primary, you know? He's 2A in Canada. (laughs) (laughs) You could see him being more important down the stretch, given, you know, the Red Priest, the the prophecy, the darkness, the others, the Zorahai. Like, you could see that uh, taking more center stage. At the end of this story, he might be clearly secondary or, or, you know, primary, maybe. I I guess George has said he doesn't plan on introducing any new POVs, so that it makes me think probably not, but... 
I would love to see. Here's one. I, here's one that I hope we get. Since we aren't going to get another POV, probably assuming he sticks to that, unless Thoros is a prologue character, which we like. No, he's going to die. <laughs> but Melisandre's POV while she interacts with Thoros would be super. Yes, interesting. that would be good. Yeah, give us yeah. that, George, or at least thinking about it afterwards if they interact. Yeah, would love to hear her thoughts on him because we probably won't get his thoughts on her. <laughs> at least not in his head. He may speak them, which that I want that too. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. Cool. All right. Dom Tartalia. Shout out to Folkwise. What's up, Dom? He says, I love how Thoros is like, what if Robert evolved into Stannis? Huh? Right? That's a really good way to put it. You know, especially with this talk about like justice and like stuff like that. Anyways. Wow. Thinned out. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Thinned out. Yeah. Just like time (laughs) is ravaging. He looks older than he is. He went from looking younger to older. Yeah. Tall, thin. That's a great take. Good one. <laughs> Sarah Jane Williams says, maybe Arya will kill Lady Stoneheart. Arya spent a while in the house of black and white and with Jockin, their doctrines rubbed off on her. A death is owed because Stoneheart has cheated death. It might be seen as a mercy. Yeah, that would be something if Arya is the one to put her own mother out of, out of her, well, give her mercy. Mer- Mer- Arya's nickname is currently Mercy. So that even more fits. Yeah. Yeah, I could see it. I could see it. She might need to be she might need to be put down, so to speak, too, if she just gets more and more evil. I'd let I I'll I'd say let her murder a few more Freys and Lannisters first and then and turn the flip that switch, but your mileage may vary. I like it on one level, but when I think of the reality of how does that timeline work? How long for Artie to leave the house and black away? Get to the Riverlands, find Lady Stoneheart. Yeah, like she traipsing but, around the Riverlands. Maybe Stoneheart goes north too, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It is tr- it is a little tricky to, to figure that out, to, to imagine the logistics of them coming together, but it's George. He could do it. He could pull it off if he wanted to. <laughs> but I, I agree. That's a small strike against that idea. Dornish James says, yeah, there's already been a split in the BWB with some people like Edric leaving. Do wonder if there'll be another. Yeah, Edric Dane left. Angai the Archer left. A few others... It's hard to Part tell. Why I like Edric so much. Yeah. <laughs> like, good. <laughs> I would leave too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was he was partly saying because Beric was his lord. Yeah. That's yeah, so who he was squire for. I was like, well, that's my lord is gone. I have no one to squire for. May as well leave. Yeah. yeah. But Get also because of we're led by a revenant now. That's a good reason uh, yeah. to leave too. <laughs> and theoretically, if you had a good revenant leader, maybe you stayed. Sure. But the revenant leader is like yeah. hell bent on revenge and violence. And Beric was a good revenant leader, I suppose. Well, he wasn't really a revenant. Yeah. He, was, yeah. he wasn't really a revenant so much as just undead. Revenant is more like implies the revenge undead. Oh, yeah. okay. I was going to say... Revenant like, is oh, undead being okay. bent on revenge, I think. Oh, okay. or, or, or bent on finishing the task it was completing. Okay. Which, in that sense, it would be Barak, because Barak is still okay. like, trying to finish the job. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, sort of was a revenant. It's kind yeah. of a loose term, you know. And Edward Dane is Lord of Starfall. He's not, like, heir to Starfall. He's Lord of Starfall. So he had another reason to leave, which yeah. is to go ahead and go be Lord of Starfall. Like, I, why am I hanging around in caves when I could go... <laughs> Man, this is a bad... Like, I could go home and... Tell the servants to make me breakfast, you know, <laughs> all day long. <laughs> mm, all day breakfast. Yeah. yeah. I'm about to have some all day breakfast after this. Yeah. This long and, three hour episode we've just done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the trivia, the question again was, Mir makes weapons that in two in particular that they're famous for, crossbows and stilettos. Oh, Mira yeah. stiletto has been mentioned. Dario is the bonus question. Yeah, I know. Dario's the qu- bonus question. He has he wields a stiletto. His two blades with the naked ladies, a sword and a st- mirror stiletto. 
I'm pretty sure Tyrion sees Lancel's attempt to grow a mustache yeah. and says it's like as thin as a mirror stiletto because it's just oh. really barely a mustache. Because there's, yeah, the word stiletto only comes up like six times in the entire series. Mm. Yeah, we <laughs> did get Shiera Seastar guest both the, the, the stiletto and the Dario. Nice part. job, Shiera Seastar. Shout out to you for getting the questions right. Yay. Good job. Oh, Sean had a cat, but she ran away. Oh. She jumped out of his lap as he oh, was sitting Immediately down. lost it. Recommended wow. further episode listening. Our recent Valar reread us on Relore, which came before House of the Dragon season. Not too long before. It was just like a few episodes before. Also, the Summer Hall episodes were pretty important. We mentioned that deal with Ares and Rhaegar. So we have two Summer Hall episodes that are pretty far back in our catalog. There's probably some others that relate as well, but I'm not sure. Oh, Sean's got the cat again. There we go. Oh, <laughs> look at her. Restored cat. That's a cute one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, so sweet. Thanks to all of you all who came live. Thanks to, and includes the kitty cats. Any other cats mm. out there that watch the stream with their owners, even if just for a minute or two, we appreciate that. Yours and the cats' presences. Thanks to Nina for the excellent takes. I read a lot of her takes today. I often do. They were particularly good today, I thought. Thank you if you're a supporter of us through Patreon or Spotify. Those are two those are the two best ways to sign up to support us financially to become a voluntary subscriber. You can also do that through our website. You can send a one-time donation. We will respond by sending you a batch of our bonus episodes. And yeah, so there's a lot of ways to support. You can also check out our sponsors, of course, whether it's any of the recurring sponsors we have. If you're using our, one of our discount codes, that always supports the show. Of course, leaving a review is nice as well. And telling your friends, that's, of course, one of the best things about in terms of ways of spreading podcasts is word of mouth. That works better than anything. Nothing sells entertainment to friends like other friends. We trust each other. I trust my friends' recommendations. You, your friends probably trust yours as well. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and Bran for our music. We have lots of music on our various forms of episodes, and those guys take care of it for us. Thanks also to Michael Klarfeld for his maps and video intro. Michael has put out a movie recently. We will be sharing it around once it gets through the pre the post-production phase. It's very close, so that's exciting. Michael is a creative dynamo. He's always working on some that's project a good term or for other. It. You're right. Creative dynamo. Yeah, he I was just, like, what he, just, he yeah. does it. He is type A. He does. He does. I mean, yeah. I mean he's a teacher, you know. Like, yeah. I mean, great and a, man, and a, a father, a teacher, and he great makes movies and makes those maps that are behind disease and makes our intro and sends us like custom cards that he cut himself that like make in like a pop out version of Winterfell or the wall or he makes like his own draft. He's just always doing creative projects. I'm Bountiful. so impressed by him. Creative yeah. energy, this man. Yeah. And an effort. Yes. Yeah. He works hard. He does. He fulfills And that. he's funny, too. He, he also too. flies he's, he's in the funny. face of the, the non-funny German like, <laughs> stereotype. Because I'm like, I, anytime I see that trope, I'm like, well, I know a f one of the funniest people I know is German. So. <laughs> yeah. He does fulfill the productive stereotype. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Hard-working. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, one, that one Germans don't mind. So I'm like, yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> So cool. Yeah. Next week is blood magic and we'll be hitting that hard with lots of fun stuff. We get to go supernatural in the meantime. Supernatural or super supernatural? Super supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> I like your take better. We'll go with the Shay's <laughs> one on that. Thanks again to both of y'all, Shay and Sean, and we'll see you all next week. And you know what to do in the meantime. Valar re -aretus.